Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. trying honestly i have been trying i just can't no matter how hard i try bring myself to care about any of these republican presidential primary debates especially now that it's the fourth time i mean if you think about it it's absolutely ridiculous the 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 people on the debate stage last night have as much of maybe less of a chance of ever becoming president of this country as you do. They have no chance of being the Republican nominee, and they have certainly have no chance of being president. And, you know, again, I, I toyed with the idea of watching it because I, I do like Megyn Kelly. I wanted to see how she would do. But I thought to myself, is this really how I want to spend an hour or two of my time? And the answer came back, absolutely not. Absolutely not. To see uh, four politicians uh, try to clout chase and insult one another, what's the point? I-, I don't see these debates as having any value whatsoever. I don't see them furthering the cause of uh, my understanding of any issues. I don't see me learning anything about these, uh, these particular candidates. I-, I just think it's a giant waste of time. I think it's in, you know, you've heard the phrase mental masturbation. I think this is uh, just an example of media masturbation. So I I didn't watch a minute of it. And uh, I said, let me spend, instead I read 10 pages of a book that came out uh, six years ago. And honestly, I think based on what I've heard so far, that was a much better use of my time. So if we're not going to talk about a bunch of blowhard politicians calling one another blowhards, What are we going to talk about? What is important? Well, first things first, it is Pearl Harbor Day. We're going to talk about uh, the Pearl Harbor attack and what that meant to the United States back in 1941 and what it's meant for the last 80 plus years in this country and some parallels to more recent attacks, including the 9-11 attacks, including the October 7th attacks and the theory that some people have that we touched upon this a little bit yesterday, that FDR might have had advanced knowledge that this attack was going to take place. Well, here's something else that I think is really important, unlike any of the issues that you would have seen raised in this debate yesterday, or lack thereof. There was a global exam out yesterday showing American 15-year-old math scores are lagging way behind their peers 
in the world's industrialized countries. U.S. students saw a 13-point drop in what they call the PISA math results, Program for International Student Assessments, when compared to the 2018 exam. Now, this is so frightening. This is something that everybody should be up in arms about. This is something that everybody should be concerned about and working to fix. You know why? Not because I'm any any great math whiz. I'm certainly not and uh, want more people to talk at, with at my trigonometry club. No. Because back in 2018, it was not as if the average 15-year-old was poised to join the faculty of MIT. Okay, I wasn't convinced that 15-year-olds were all that bright back in 2018. So to think in just four years, 2018 to 2022, we have seen a 13-point drop in math scores. This is horrifying. Thankfully, the U.S. did score above the international average in reading and science. So... Congratulations. If you are an American 15-year-old, when it comes to reading and science, when you're talking about your global peers and your global competition in the rest of the world, you are above average. So this test, the PISA of 2022, is the first to take place since the pandemic. It compares the test results of nearly 700,000 students across 81 different countries. 31 countries and economies maintained or improved upon their 2018 scores. So it's not as if every single country went down and we just went down with the rest of the world. No. Children in the rest of the world, I don't want to say they're getting smarter because test scores aren't necessarily an indicia that of intelligence, but... Children around the rest of the world are getting better at math, and American teenagers are getting worse. Switzerland, they did better. Japan, they did better. The countries that did better, of those 31 countries, they share some common characteristics. Shorter school closures during the pandemic. I have said, look, if every day there is new proof that everything that we did during the pandemic was wrong. And right at the top of that list is closing schools and keeping them closed as long as we did. And the the students in the countries that did well, they had very short school closures. The other thing um, that they had in common was fewer impediments to remote learning. Students around the world have suffered historic setbacks in reading and math since COVID. And these setbacks span rich nations, poor nations, big nations, small nations, with very few making progress. Multiple studies have highlighted the adverse and stark impact of the pandemic on education. And I think this is so important because eventually there's going to be another pandemic. I don't know if it's going to be in a year. I don't know if it's going to, we're seeing the beginnings of it now with this white lung disease. I don't know if it's going to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, or 75 years. Whoever's in charge of the school system and other aspects of society need to understand what a huge mistake this was. We as a society have failed 
the current generation of school children by allowing these schools to close. This is absurd that we are seeing America's students fall farther and farther behind. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it was unquestionable that America was the world's leader. The world's leader in what? The world's leader in everything. Now, does anybody think that's the case? No. And I really shudder to think, if these trends continue, what we're going to be doing going forward. So if you're interested in uh, what name Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy called one another, uh, I can't help you. But if you want to offer a solution to how we can get American kids learning again, how we can make progress, not only to beat back the slide that children have gone through over the last five years, but also to maybe advance globally, I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Five open lines if you want to comment. I uh, would love to hear not only your solution to this math education gap, but I'd love to know, I mean, I think everybody acknowledges that it was such a mistake to close schools right now. And reading scores did fall a bit as well, but we're still above average there. So nobody is raising the same kind of dramatic calls for concern that they are about the math scores. Where do you think this leaves the country right now? I mean, look, I'm an optimist. I'm a glass half full kind of a guy. I like to hope that the uh, next generation is going to be better off. But all indications are, at least when it comes to intelligence, they're not. So I find this very disheartening. Hey, uh, today, in addition to Pearl Harbor, is another very noteworthy anniversary. It was 30 years ago today that the Long Island Railroad massacre took place. And I know we have a lot of listeners around the country. You might think, oh, what's the big deal? It was a shooting on a, on a railroad 30 years ago. There's shootings every day. Just look at what happened in Las Vegas. Sure. I get it. I get that. Um, this was so significant because it was just an incredibly unusual story. It was unusual in that uh, somebody came out of that uh, and went to Congress. It was unusual in that the gunman that uh, killed all these people and injured all these people then went on to fire very competent attorneys and then represent himself at trial. It was unusual in that this was someone that had never really given any indication that he was at all violent sort of just snapped. So we're going to get into it with uh, someone that was an integral part of covering this and actually a pretty interesting part of the behind-the-scenes aspect of those events itself. We're going to talk with Mike Thompson, who, if you don't remember the name, you will remember the voice if you've been a talk radio listener for a long time in uh, the next 15 minutes. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Joe in Lindbrook. Hi, Joe. Joe, uh, let me yeah, let me try this one. Joe in Lindbrook, hi. Hi, how are you? Um, question for you: You're blaming the children for what happened during the pandemic. My opinion is, I'm blaming us. Union. I'm blaming us. No, Every no, one of no, us. No, hold on a second. All right, it's the teachers' union that shut the schools down. 
All right. Well, great. I'm happy to blame them as well. I, I think this is something we all need to own. Every mayor, every governor, whoever was president, every teachers union leader and every uh, every PTA member, every school board member. I mean, to think that we sat by. Now, look, I, I don't want to be a Monday morning quarterback because people were very frightened at the time. You didn't know what was going on. People were very concerned. They were in fear for their 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 safety and their children's safety. But, I mean, seeing what went on during this, we owe every child a an apology, quite frankly, because uh, keeping these schools closed set them back potentially for the rest of their academic lives. I realize that may sound to some people like a bit of a... Um, you know, a bit of an exaggeration. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think you are seeing, you know, in Japan, uh, they had a decade where their economy was in the doldrums. They called it the lost decade. I think you are going to see a generation of school children, basically the lost generation of school children, unless we do something about this quickly. And we saw what other countries did. Other countries handled this very well. Switzerland, Japan, not America. Not America. We had better get our act together. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. You can find us on X as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, you can also find us on uh, Facebook. Just uh, search uh, Morano Fan at Facebook.com slash Morano Fan. A little bit later in this program, we're going to talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade as well, go through the news of the day. I think he did watch the debate, so we'll get his take on what this means. Also, I don't know if you heard my interview last week with Brian Kilmeade, but I asked him if he thought that um, that uh, Kevin McCarthy was going to run for re-election. His, his suggestion was not only did he think McCarthy was going to run for re-election, but that he was so integral that whoever the next president was should include him in the administration. And it turns out Kevin McCarthy has filed a resignation. Very difficult. I wonder if all those Republicans that were so eager to expel George Santos— I wonder now that once McCarthy resigns, they're only going to have a two-seat majority in the House. I wonder if they would still make that same decision. Norman is in Brooklyn. What's on your mind? Hi, Frank. Yes, to reverse this catastrophe of the math, we need to have some sort of a national test, a national math test that everybody needs to get behind. So it's a singular path that everybody needs to pass this national math test. And I also I also find it strange. I'm looking at the list here. They uh, for some reason China is not included in this list, and I venture to say that their math scores are way ahead of us. I just have a a feeling. I don't know why they didn't include them. I don't know why they didn't include Russia. That's a hell of a lot of kids. So yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I hear when it comes to uh, testing, though is that there are, you know, th- that teachers get too into teaching to the test. I mean, do you share that concern? No, not no, really. No, you don't. Okay. I mean, I think, I think, I think, there, I think there, the, the stress in education now is not all this social stuff, and I think all this social stuff is important, but I think it's much important that we raise kids who can think critically, and mathematics is, is important. Yeah, is, is important. To yeah, I agree with you, Norman. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have a national barometer, but I don't know necessarily what giving kids another test that they can't pass would do. And uh, as far as Norman's other point about China and Russia not being included, they're not part of the OECD. Uh, The OECD is an intergovernmental organization with 38 member countries, and uh, Russia is sort of an international pariah these days, so it's not a tremendous surprise that they weren't included. But if you look at the countries that were included, the UK, France, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Iceland, Norway, Mexico, Belgium, New Zealand, South Korea, Portugal, they're very, it's a very diverse list of countries, different parts of the world, different ethnicities, different things going on, different socioeconomic situations in those countries. And I don't know that there's a country that fell as steeply as the United States did. 800-848-9222. Corey's in Rockland. What's on your mind, Corey? Hey, Frank. How you doing? Um, so I just uh, wanted to comment on the education decline that uh, this country has. I think uh, there's a huge, uh, a huge amount of, of issues that need to be uh, really looked into deeply. Uh, one being I don't believe that they hire qualified people to be teachers. I think it's become uh, like a civil service job. Uh, Nothing against, I work in civil service, but nothing against like a sanitation, firefighter, police officers. I mean, there are minimum qualifications to get these jobs. And even though I I understand there's heavy education through to get uh, your school education in a lot of these states, uh, it's it's a lot of just to push by and, and go because the colleges need to push out people with these degrees and get the money and so on and so such. Not to mention that they focus not on anything anymore that was the ground roots of education, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now, uh, my son, he can barely spell, and his handwriting is atrocious. Why? Because they, he, uh, from the age, uh, I want to say second grade, uh, and now the kids even before that are getting laptops uh, of their own, um, you know, up here in Rockland. I know a lot of uh, communities, it's the same thing. And they're just designed to look for word recognition. So they see that, you know, it's a spell check or auto check or whatever. Uh, you see, you start to spell the word, you know, whatever word you're looking to. And then you see it at the bottom or a suggestion of words and it's word recognition. And teachers, they told me about my oh that's what we want because this is like a curriculum that they do now either it's because they were told to do that forced to do that or they don't know what to do to change it because they want to implement all these computers which don't get me wrong that's great but i bet if we go across seas a lot of these other countries do the computer work but it's a strict and like you said shorter day uh it's a more strict on education not go home and play video games and and uh, it's, it's just a, a, a compilation of, of, of many things like that, that we, we need to get back to some roots. But to do that would have to go back old school. And we're in a progressive country. So it's always move forward, move forward, move forward without thinking about what damage we're causing. Yeah, uh, Corey, thank you. I really don't think the problem here is that uh, too many people are using computers. I I think the problem is that we shut schools down, and I, I think it, it, the problem is education in general. The, the prior part of your point, I think, was, was interesting about the qualifications of those that become teachers versus firefighters and sanitation workers. I mean, is that what would solve this? I mean, you know, I hear from so many teachers, and whenever we do the – because a lot of places – including in New Jersey, for instance, a lot of places around the country, they're experiencing a teacher shortage. And it, it's in part 
survey after survey, and even anecdotally from friends of mine that are teachers, I hear it that they've made the job so crummy, no one wants to be a teacher. They not only are, is it not a job that you're getting rich at, but which was never the case, but it's a job that you feel totally disrespected. It's a job where you feel handcuffed by the administration, by the children, by the parents of the children. And it's become a job where you really, if you're very, very smart, unless you have a great passion for teaching, you could make a whole lot more money and get a whole lot less aggravation in another field. So maybe maybe that's part of it. I don't know. But we got to do something about this. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve. I'm in Brooklyn, not Brooklyn. All right. Well, then let me go to Vincent in Brooklyn. Hello, Vincent. Yeah, I'm from Brooklyn. Hi, Frank. Yeah, that's what I like. All right. All right. Frank, in other countries, I, I go to Europe a lot. They don't have these problems because what they do is they got to go back to the old school. In other words, instead of the teacher spending a half hour trying to get the kids to shut up, to put their cell phones away, to stop talking, they got to get the kids who are fighting and everything. They got to... They, they don't suspend kids anymore. You got to put them in the 600 schools like they used to do in the 50s. Every borough had a 600 school. The really bad kids went there. They didn't change. They didn't have uh, change periods. They didn't go from class to class. They, they stayed in one class. The teacher went in there, so there was there was no rough housing in the hallways. They got a, because there, a lot of kids in the class do want to learn. They do want to get education. But the other kids in the class that are disrupting the class, the teachers spending so much time trying to get it together, trying to get them to shut up and everything. They gotta go. They gotta go back to the old school. And I'm telling you because at one time I I wasn't up to snuff with my reading, and my mother told the teacher if he's not up to snuff by the end of the semester, I want you to leave him back. Right. Oh, my parents would have said the same thing. I, in fact, I think they did say the same thing. And I got left back. My mother said, leave him back because she realized that if you can't read, if you can't comprehend what you're reading, you're cooked. Because especially in those days, as the gentleman was talking about with the spell check, there wasn't no spell check. There weren't tablets. There weren't iPhones. There weren't any. There was Webster's Dictionary and uh, and a notebook. Well, I mean, also, Vincent, though, there were days where you would do math using an abacus. Uh, we're not in those days anymore. I really don't think the villain is the last part of what you said. No, I don't I don't think the villain that. is technology. I'm fact that you got to get the rowdy kids under control. You can't have kids that are that are, are taking over the class. I agree with that 100%. Hey, do you think, obviously we see what goes on in New York here, it's just a zoo. Do you think that's a nationwide problem though, Vincent? I think it's a problem of the biggest cities in our country. And I'm sorry to say, I think, I think most of the Democratic uh, big cities that are run by Democratic mayors and Democratic governors are down the toilet. I'm sorry. All right, Vincent, thank you. Silas is on Staten Island. Hi, Silas. Yeah, uh, like I was saying, it's a part of other countries who need to dumb us down. We were, like you said before, we were tops in everything. America was tops in everything, and they knew the only way they're going to take down the giant 
is by miseducating and misinforming generations of kids. And to, I, I work with I work with guys who are in their thirties and forties, and I can't believe how uneducated they are and and so many different things and imagine and how when, much dumber these kids are than the ones you're working with so give me your solution silas what do you think the solution is solution is uh things i'm i'm trying to get done is uh, uh, trying to get people to a, a bigger respect for um not only for education but for <clears throat> all people in general and when we were a judeo-christian society and we emphasize those things look how much further we went and 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 everything and now we're trying to instead of being proud of the culture that america is and we're trying to uh bring every other culture and instead of them assimilating into us into an american culture we're trying to pick and choose each one and then the other part is greed. These people fall for this stuff because of greed. You've got a president who doesn't mind selling our um, selling yeah. our intelligence. To China. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know? I honestly, I'm not blaming this on Biden. I mean, uh, th- this is something that, um, I, I mean, you could say Biden is symptomatic of the problem. You know what it is? And this is the problem with talking about issues like this. With a political audience, honestly, or with an audience where many of whom is political. You have so many people that whatever the problem is, the problem could be, well, we haven't had nice weather lately. Well, why do you think we haven't had nice weather? Because the uh, left wing in this country has gotten all these crazy regulations and they won't let you enjoy the nice weather. And then other people say, well, we don't have nice weather because the right wing in this country, they want to pollute like crazy and that's causing climate change. No, I mean, I, I think this is something what you just said. I think it's too easy an answer. Honestly, I think it's a cop out. And. As long as you've convinced yourself that that's the answer, that, oh, just don't vote for those people, then I guarantee you one thing. This will never get solved. Because unless all of us, media people, politicians, civic activists, parents, grandparents, citizens, unless everyone listening cares about this and says, what am I going to do to improve this? then we're still going to go down the tubes. This is going to get worse. If you think this is something as simple as just voting for another political party, it's not. It's not. Sorry. All right. Uh, 30 years ago today, the Long Island Railroad Massacre. We will get into it with someone who has a very interesting connection and observation on it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. ago today that a mass shooting occurred aboard a Long Island railroad train in Garden City Park, New York. Now, if you're under the age of 30 listening to this, you might think, what's the big deal? There's mass shootings every day. If it's not in Buffalo, it's in Las Vegas. If it's not in Las Vegas, it's in uh, South Carolina. If it's not in South Carolina, it's in California. There's one every day. What's the big deal? Well, this it was just such a fascinating story. Every aspect of it was fascinating. As the train arrived at the station, a passenger, Colin Ferguson, began firing at other passengers with a semi-automatic pistol. Six of the victims were killed. Nineteen others were wounded before Ferguson was tackled and held down by other passengers on the train. Ferguson's trial was remarkable for a number of things, just how unusual it was. He has great attorneys, including my friend Ron Kuby. He fires these terrific attorneys and insists on representing himself. So not only did he represent himself, he ends up questioning the victims on the stand. Understand what, what this meant. The very same people that he shot on the train. He's then cross-examining in the courtroom. Is it your testimony that the defendant Ferguson stood right in front of you? By the way, I want to make clear. When he says uh, the defendant Ferguson, he's talking about himself. That's what he's talking about. I mean, think of how bizarre this is. That the defendant Ferguson stood right in front of you and shot you. You weren't right in front of me. You were about 10 to 12 feet away. Approximately distance we're at about now. The only time you have seen the suspect is on TV because you were playing dead. Am I correct? I saw you shoot me and I've seen you on TV. Not surprisingly, it did not take a jury very long to convict him of six counts of murder, 19 counts of attempted murder. He's currently incarcerated at Great Meadow Correctional Facility with an earliest possible release date of August of 2309. Now, it's funny. Memory is a funny thing. I've talked about this before in varying contexts. For instance, you know, people remember things that didn't happen and people dwarf things in their own memory that did happen. And I, I, for instance, when I was three or four, I have a vivid recollection, a clear as a bell, clear as clear as yesterday memory of me misbehaving when I was three or four years old and my father taking this little tool set that I had in a little toolbox and going into our backyard and off the balcony, throwing it into the woods to punish me because I was being so annoying. I've brought this up with my father many times. He insists 
that this didn't happen. Now I go back and look at that dest- that uh, that balcony to the fence uh, distance. It would have been a tough throw for him to make, even somebody as athletic as my dad was. Um, do I not remember this? Was this a dream that I had when I was a three year old or a four year old? Or does my father not remember? I have no idea. So as I was thinking about this thirty year anniversary of this very bizarre crime, I seem to remember that I had a coworker who not only had a vivid recollection of what it was like to cover this as a member of the media, but I seem to remember him telling me that he actually played some sort of a role in Colin Ferguson knowing how to take the Long Island Railroad. Now, I thought to myself, that can't be. That can't be. How could he have both covered this and had any sort of relationship with Colin Ferguson before that? And I said, let me reach out to him again. Sure enough, my memory did not fail me. And this story is absolutely fascinating. I am very, very pleased uh, to welcome back to the airwaves a gentleman that is uh, no stranger to many of the listeners on many of our stations, Mike Thompson, a veteran talk radio producer and program director who's now a character actor in Los Angeles. Mike, it's great to talk with you again. Uh, It's great to have a fellow uh, producer, former producer, make good. So it's a pleasure. And uh, I think the last time I was on uh, your station in New York, WABC, was a year prior to the shooting when I was thrust into hosting the morning show with Bruce Anderson, when uh, Curtis Lewa, the host of the show that I produced, was shot. So uh, here we are again, and it's a screwy story, very tragic. You know, like you, I'm sure you went back in some of the archives and read some of the particulars and, you know, reading about uh, Rep, Rep New York uh, Representative uh, Carolyn McCarthy and her husband being killed, and she went into politics, was a big proponent of gun control, and uh, where do I start? Well, so let's set the stage for people, Mike. Um, You've had a career in radio that goes back almost a half century. For instance, even though this is your first time as a guest on this program, you're heard on this program every December because you're a voice in the 1981 version of WMCA's A Christmas Carol with Bob Grant as Ebenezer Scrooge. So uh, if when I think of somebody that's worked in radio forever, not that you're that old, but I think of you. So what were you doing uh, in December of 1993 professionally? Where were you well, at that point in your life? Well, I, I was producing the morning show with uh, Curtis Sliwa, founder of the Guardian Angels, still heard in New York. And many people around the country know from his appearances on many network television shows. And his then wife, Lisa Sliwa, they were called Angels in the Morning. And for those of you not in the radio business or a cop or a fireman or someone that opens up a Dunkin' Donuts at uh, five in the morning, you know, Frank, the the life of a morning show producer is uh, bizarre. You're up uh, very early in the morning in the station, probably about 430, uh, starting your prep. And frankly, this was before computers. And just to tell you, when I would track down guests, I booked about six guests, phone guests on the fly every morning before the Internet. Many times I would be in what was called a Coles reverse directory. 
If I had a name of somebody in the news, I would go through the phone book and wake up every John Smith in Brooklyn <laughs> to put them on the freaking radio, right? So anyway, um, I'm at home in a place called Little Neck, New York. I live right near the train station, so I could catch the train first thing in the morning. At that time, uh, WABC uh, was at right above Penn Station, and it was very easy to come up the escalator, go to work. So um, when you're a producer of a radio, you have weird hours of when you sleep, when you nap, and so forth. So um, I had one of the first Motorola brick phones, big brick Motorola cell phone, and I was fortunate not to have to grab a, you know, a uh, payphone back in the day. But um, I believe I had a police scanner. So I'm sitting at home, probably drowsy, because I had to get up the next morning and produce the show, and I heard some activity going on on Long Island, and I heard Marillon Avenue. It's a station in Garden City, New York, on the Long Island Railroad, what, about 25 minutes from New York City, from Penn Station. So I get in my car, a little Volkswagen, um, with New York press plates, and I drive to the station, and I was able to get pretty close to the station near the platform because I had the press plates. And Frank, um, to this day, it still haunts me seeing corpses, dead bodies with blood against the window of the train with the head leaning against the window. Victims, some of the six victims and perhaps some of the 19 injured that were shot. It Mm. was haunting. It still is. And of course, later in this story, we'll tell you even more haunting. But so I get on my brick phone and I call our program director, John Manelli, the genius who's probably listening in Omaha, Nebraska right now. And uh, I say, look, you know, I'm listening to our station and we have G. Gordon Liddy on the air on a tape show, I think. And he's talking all about guns and <laughs> buying guns and blah, blah, blah. They go, John, we got to, <laughs> this, this is going to be a big story. We got to do something about this. So we brought in a host. Um, I guess then uh, Jade Diamond was more of a weekend host or part-time host. And we put him on the air and I'm phoning in live reports from the scene, Maryland Avenue, the train station, and just describing what I saw, the horrific sights of, of this incredible massacre. Uh, of course, most of the area was. And, and so for folks that are out of New York, uh, Garden City is an extremely affluent community on Long Island, Nassau County. And um, seeing the the police and the fire and the ambulances and the cordoned off train station um, was just a, a sight with a, a lot of people wondering what was going on. So I'm calling back. Finally, we get Jay on the air and I'm describing what um, is going on. And for those of you that don't know Jay Diamond, and I'm sure, you know, 30 years later, maybe he's changed, but Jay could be riled up quite easily. Is that a fair, a fair assessment? Uh, fr- yes, I think that I think he would admit that that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Yes. So he is screaming on the phone as I'm trying to relate everything that I'm seeing. And he's going, you know, 
This is, you know what this is going to be? This is going to be black rage. Everyone should get torches and like the movie Frankenstein and go down to Mineola to the Nassau County Courthouse and Okay, well, Jay, we don't really know any information right now. Mike, let me ask a quick question. At at, at this point, had there been an identification of the suspect at the time that you were— they identified him as a black man. Gotcha, okay, gotcha. That's that's correct, and that's what set Jay off. Got it. And and frankly, although it was very reactionary, it was somewhat prescient, as we find out later on in the story. And and so I probably stayed there to about maybe— this time, uh, one or two in the morning, and then got a few hours of sleep and went in to to do the morning show at WABC. And obviously, this was a, a big subject. And as you mentioned, the, these mass shootings weren't uh, commonplace, mm-hmm. and especially in Garden City, New York. Um, you know, the, it just doesn't happen. So, um, you know, a couple of months or weeks go by and they identify the subjects and literally Frank, I almost passed out. Happenstance is a weird thing on how twists of fate can intertwine with parts of your life. During a lull in my 50 year radio career, I had to get a job and I was working as a recruiter, essentially a salesman at a trade school in Westbury, New York. Those of you in New York would know exactly where it is, Ellison Avenue, where the DMV was at one time. I don't know whether it's still there. And the way these trade schools work is they advertise on the kind of non-network stations in New York, Channel 9, Channel 5, and the person calls in the as run during the day when maybe someone's not working, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they call into the, to the school and a person like me would answer and essentially recruit them to come in to take a test and, you know, try to wrap them up mm-hmm. in financial aid and enroll them. Sure. And many of these schools were, well, let's say they're not quite legitimate. This particular school, and I think they're out of business, was a computer school to tell you how, backward in time this was it was a school that showed people how to use mainframe computers <laughs> pcs weren't even really wow. thought about <laughs> so we had an ibm 4350 or some freaking machine like that so this kid calls in from brooklyn and one of the problems that the school had and why they eventually closed is that the most of the leads were from brooklyn and queens So we're in Westbury, New York, which is about, what, 20 minutes out of the city, out of Manhattan. And there is no public transportation that people in Brooklyn, Queens are familiar with. They're familiar with the subway system and the bus system. Right. The N train, the four train. Right. Absolutely. So you had to show them or tell them, walk them through to go to Flatbush Avenue, which was the terminal for the Long Island Railroad at the time. Um, and had them take the train to Westbury, New York, walk down Post Road, and go to Ellison Avenue, where this thing was. So I get a call. This is probably, what, three years prior to 93. And um, a gentleman from Brooklyn 
from the islands, Jamaica, calls me up, and um, I tell him how to take the train, Long Island Railroad, you know, stopping then probably what, at, uh, um, trying to think uh, of the different stops. Jamaica is obviously the big thing, and then you take the train, Maryland Avenue, Carl Place, Westbury, Mineola, blah, blah, blah. And so I tell this kid how to take the train. He comes in, takes the test, aces the test. It was a legitimate test. 100% perfect. Wow. I meet with him. I hear his background. He comes from an incredible family in Jamaica. Very uh, well-to-do, high up in government. And um, that kid was the shooter. Colin Ferguson. That is absolutely amazing. I mean, I've always wondered what was his deal was, what kind of caused him to to snap. In uh, other documentaries about this case, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Mike Thompson, a veteran a talk radio producer and program director. These days, he's an actor. He covered the Long Island Railroad shooting for WABC 30 years ago. But um, one of the things that I hear from police that spoke with Ferguson afterwards is he seemed to tie everything to racism. He uh, kept pointing out instances that he felt discriminated against or that were somehow unfair to either him specifically or to black people. Did you get the sense when you interacted with Ferguson, either in giving him directions on how to take the train or uh, dealing with him on the test or anything along those lines, did you get the sense that he had any sort of a chip on his shoulder or any sort of racial animus? None. None. What I got was a very well-educated, very um, nice gentleman kid who um, was in this country. And believe me, I I am not one to speak about race and all the ramifications and permeations of race and so forth. But I can tell you, knowing some people from the islands, a guy that I helped along in his career, Stephen A. Smith, other people. it's a t- and if you've ever been to the islands, you probably have Frank. Mm-hmm. You're a big spender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Too much. Totally different culture. So I only surmise just on basically the stories I've heard about him. But meeting him in that instance is here. He is in Brooklyn, and I'm sure you know there's a big Jamaican community in Brooklyn. I'm not sure whether he was tied into that, but the cultures of an islander who happens to be. Um, a black islander, and perhaps those, some of those in Brooklyn, um, is totally different. And I'm guessing, and the stories that maybe he relates bear it out that it was a. And I know there were a lot of things with it. You know, he lost people from cancer sure. and all kinds of. You know, he had a tough life. I think his just his freaking head exploded, and he went crazy, uh-huh. and. And here I am still to this day feeling guilt that, you know, if I didn't enroll this guy into school and teach him how to, because the question always when you had these leads on the phone for Brooklyn or Queens, well, what train do I take out there? I go, well, (laughs) it's the Long Island Railroad. What's that? Okay. Is that the D train? I go, no, 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 no. So, you know, here is this guy transplanted from this life that he had in Jamaica um, and he's just 
in Brooklyn and, you know, well, you could fill in the blanks, probably what he felt, whether it was justified or not, certainly not. But, you know, it's a culture shock. Uh, uh, that is wild. And, and the reason that you mentioned Jay's commentary uh, of black rage being prescient, it was because his lawyers, before he fired them and represented himself, uh, Kunstler and Kuby, that was their defense, that he was driven to temporary insanity by this psychiatric condition they called black rage. Very yep. interesting. Hey, uh, Mike, thanks for uh, letting us uh, tap into you, uh, your brain and uh, stroll down memory lane. Uh, let's talk again. Absolutely, Frank. Great uh, to hear you. And uh, you're probably on every radio station I've programmed throughout the country. Uh, So hello. (laughs) Take care and have a wonderful morning. We'll take it. Thank you. Mike Thompson. uh, Great to hear his voice again. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. 30 years ago today, the Long Island Railroad Massacre. Wow. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. This is a uh, bumper music selection from Mike in New Jersey, our listener of the week. And uh, it was, he's got quite a diverse and exhaustive list that you will be hearing throughout the program. All right, 800-848-9222. A lot to get to, including Brian Kilmeade, including Pearl Harbor. Let me say hello to, um, you know, those of you that are holding, uh, just, well, let me squeeze in one call here if we can make it quick. Carol in Yonkers, hi. Oh, good morning. Hi, how are you? I just had a quick um, uh, commentary. It was interesting to hear the gentleman speaking about Colin Ferguson. I was telling the screener, I just happened to be in the middle of the Caribbean. Um, I remember December 5th, 1993 was the Sunday. We left for St. Martin. And then on Thursday, in the middle of nowhere, I think we were in one of the islands, um, we had heard what happened in Long Island. And, of course, you know, the nucleus of our group, we were all from New York, and we were all shocked and upset being so far away. Now, this was, there was no cell phone then. Yeah, Carol, I can imagine that was quite a shock. To hear about while you're on vacation. Wow. Um, All right. Those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you after the top of the hour. Meantime, keep asking questions. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, today in 1941, at dawn, a carrier-based Japanese, carrier-based Japanese aircraft launched a sneak attack devastating the United States battle fleet at Pearl Harbor. A day later, the President of the United States at the time, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, appeared before a joint session of Congress to ask for a declaration of war. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. I mentioned this yesterday because now a similar narrative has developed around Benjamin Netanyahu and the October 7th attacks that there were always these theories that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt or other U.S. government officials had advanced knowledge of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor. Ever since the Japanese attack, quite frankly, there's been debate as to why and how the United States was caught off guard in a lot of ways, very similar to what we're hearing with Israel now, and how much and when American officials knew of Japanese plans for the attack. September of 1944, John T. Flynn, who was co-founder of something called the America First Committee, launched a Pearl Harbor counter-narrative when he published a booklet titled The Truth About Pearl Harbor, arguing that FDR and his inner circle had been plotting to provoke the Japanese into an attack and thus provide a reason to enter the war. Several writers, including journalist Robert Stinnett, um, retired Navy Admiral Robert Alfred Theobald, and others have argued that various parties high in the government and the UK and our government and their government knew of the attack in advance and may have even let it happen or encouraged it in order to ensure America's entry into World War II. So most people view the Pearl Harbor advanced knowledge theory as Fringe. That's been rejected by many historians. And indeed, there have been 
10 official U.S. government is, uh, inquiries, and none have found that um, the United States or high-level government officials had knowledge that this attack was going to happen. But there are still people that have bought into this for many years. In fact, I tried to reach out to most of the prominent writers that have said this and published about it and seem, you know, relatively certain of the evidence that they've gathered that point in this direction. Unfortunately, almost everyone, including the ones that I just mentioned, they're all dead. They're all dead. Most of the writers that subscribe to this are all dead. It is interesting. There was one other historian that I tried to get in contact with today by the name of George Nash. I was finally able to get uh, an email address for him, but he never got back to me about appearing on this show. At the time of this attack, the former president, Herbert Hoover, who had lost to FDR in um, 1932 and had kind of become an elder statesman and would go on for the rest of his life to be a very respected ex-president. In some ways, it was kind of like Jimmy Carter in that um, Herbert Hoover had a very poor reputation when he left office, but that reputation improved as he did a lot of things as an ex-president. Well, ex-president Herbert Hoover, who was a Republican, who was vanquished by Democrat FDR, said, we have only one job to do now, and that is to defeat Japan. That's what he said publicly. But to friends, he sent another message. He said, you and I know that this continuous putting pins in rattlesnakes finally got this country bit. So as we're, uh, you know, 70, uh, 80 years or more, 82 years after Pearl Harbor, it's interesting to look back at what Hoover noted because there was this remarkable secret history that was written from 1943 to 1963 by Herbert Hoover. And it was published and edited by the historian George Nash, which is why I invited him on the show. But it's Hoover's explanation of what happened before, during, and after World War II that, you know, are some similar issues to what we're dealing with today. So this book, Freedom Betrayed, Herbert Hoover's History of the Second World War and its Aftermath, it's available. You could buy it. It's a searing indictment of FDR and the men around him as politicians who lied about their desire to keep America out of war, even as they took one deliberate step after another to take us into war. So it has this 50-page um, run-up to the war in the Pacific. It uses memoirs and documents from all sides to make Hoover's case that essentially the United States provoked Japan into doing this. And it's Hoover's explanation of, you know, what happened here. And the best way to show the power of the book is the way Hoover does it, chronologically, painstakingly, week by week. And it gets into, in this book, Freedom Betrayed, Japan's situation in the summer of 1941. They were bogged down in a four-year war in China that uh, Japan was not going to win nor end. Having moved into French Indochina, Japan saw herself as near the end of her tether. So inside the government, 
the Japanese government, was a powerful faction led by Prime Minister Prince Fumimaro Konoye that desperately did not want a war with the United States. And the Anglo-Saxon camp included the Navy, whose officers had fought alongside the U.S. and Royal Navies in World War One. While the war, well, you know, the war was centered in the army, there were some anti-American sentiments within the Japanese party as well. There was sort of a war party in Japan. General Hideki Tojo, Foreign Minister Yosoki Matsuaka, very anti-American, and so Kanoye ousted. Matsuaka, replacing him with Admiral Toyota, T-O-Y-O-D-A, not quite like the car, but not too dissimilar. And the U.S. response, that was July 18th of 1941, the U.S. response on July 25th was the U.S. froze all Japanese assets in the United States, ending all exports and imports and denying Japan the oil upon which the whole country and the empire depended. So stunned, this prime minister still pursued his peace policy by winning secret support from the Navy and the Army to meet FDR on the U.S. side of the Pacific to hear and respond to U.S. demands. U.S. Ambassador Joseph Grew implored Washington, and this is all in this book, all chronicled by Hoover, Joseph Grew implored Washington not to ignore Kanoye's offer that the prince had convinced him an agreement could be reached on Japanese withdrawal from Indochina and from South and Central China. So out of fear of Mao's armies and Stalin's Russia, Japan wanted to hold a little bit of a buffer in North China. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of like the argument that we hear from Putin about why he didn't want Ukraine joining NATO. So on August 28th, Japan's ambassador in Washington presented FDR a personal letter from Kanoye imploring him to meet. That's August 28th. Chokyo begged us to keep this offer secret because the revelation of a Japanese prime minister offering to cross the Pacific to talk to an American president could imperil his whole government. On September 3rd, that letter was leaked to the Herald Tribune. On September 6th, Konoye met again at a three-hour dinner with Ambassador Gru to tell him Japan now agreed with the four principles the Americans were demanding as the basis for peace. That's September 6th. No response. September 29th, Ambassador Gru sent what Hoover describes as a prayer to the president not to let this chance for peace pass by. September 30th, Gru writes to Washington, Kanoye's warship is ready, waiting to take him to Honolulu, Alaska, or any place designated by the president. No response. On October 16th, Kanoye's cabinet fell. In November, the U.S. intercepts two new offers from Tokyo, a plan, uh, a plan A for an end to the China war, and the occupation of Indochina, and if that were rejected, a plan B, where neither side would make any new move when presented, these two were rejected out of hand. November 25th, 
meeting of FDR's War Council. Secretary of War Henry Stimson notes, his notes that are in the book, speak of the prevailing consensus. A question was how we should maneuver them, the Japanese, into firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Navy Secretary Frank Knox, we can wipe the Navy, the Japanese off the map in three months. That's what the Navy Secretary, Secretary Frank Knox wrote. As Ambassador Grew had predicted, Japan proved more likely to fling herself into national suicide for honor than to allow herself to be humiliated. And out of that war, out of the war that arose from the refusal to meet Prince Kanoye, came scores of thousands of U.S. dead, not only in Pearl Harbor, but, you know, for the, the whole Japanese theater. You had Hiroshima, you had Nagasaki, the fall of China to Mao Zedong, wars in Korea and Vietnam, and the rise of this new arrogant China that showed very little respect for the superpowers of yesterday. So if you are interested in the history, spend a week with this book. Again, uh, the book is called, and I'm sorry the uh, the editor of it never got back to me, George uh, George Nash. And if he gets back to me in the future, I'll invite him on again because it's an interesting book. Um, you can get it used on Amazon for $23. New, it's expensive. It's $46. It's called Freedom Betrayed, Herbert Hoover's Secret History of the Second World War and Its Aftermath. And there's always a lot of talk about provocation in, in conflicts, right? When... Um, Russia invaded Ukraine. So much of what we heard was, oh, uh, Ukraine provoked Russia to do that. When uh, Hamas uh, attacked Israel, so much of what we heard was uh, that uh, Israel had provoked Hamas into doing that. I am curious if you buy, one, the theory that, quite frankly, I don't buy, that American officials actually knew about this world, this uh attack on Pearl Harbor before it happened and let it happen. I don't buy that. Or two, basically the case that Hoover lays out in this secret history that the United States provoked Japan. I have to be honest, I think there's some truth to it. I I also would love to hear your thoughts, especially anybody that lived through Pearl Harbor, September 11th, and October 7th, what you see as the uh, the similarities there between all those three incidents and what you see as the key differences. Obviously, I think there are many. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. <clears throat> and obviously, you're welcome to comment on uh, anything else that we've, that we've covered as well. It's only been an hour and 20 minutes into the show, but we've already covered... A great deal of ground. Uh, let me say hello to Robert in Suffolk. Hi, Robert. Hey, Frank. Um, I was uh, going to talk about the educational system and improvements that could be made. All right. Well, it's your dime, Robert. Say whatever you like. Okay. Thank you. Um, one thing is schools need to be safe. There have to be things like access controls installed on the doors and for them to be locked with security systems and a armed security officer in the front so that schools, children and staff can, can remain safe. 
instead of the current system where it's really haphazard as to what security protocols are in place so everyone can be safe inside the buildings. That's one thing. All right, well, um, another thing. Go ahead. Okay, would be standards. Standards have been lowered for teachers and children to pass the courses and for teachers to teach them. That's not good. You lower your standards, you're going to lower the outcome. You'll have a less favorable and ethical outcomes. For, for the students. Yeah, well, I certainly, I certainly agree with that, Robert. You know, as far as your first point about safety in schools, um, needless to say, I certainly think we should have improved safety in public schools. I think that would be a great thing. I don't know if the decline in math scores internationally is due to uh, poor safety. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I, just, I just don't. I think we, we should have, poor, you know, important safety um, in place in every school because we want people to be safe. But I don't think that's the reason math, math scores are down, personally. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, I do agree with those people who believe that Roosevelt intentionally provoked the Japanese to attack. I don't believe they knew about the attack in advance because I think that's a bridge too far. But I think if you look at what was going on at the time with Lend-Lease to Great Britain, the United States clearly intended to get into the European war. And Hitler declared war on the United States after we declared war on Japan. Japan attacked us first. But who did we prioritize when the war started? Mm -hmm. We prioritized Germany, not Japan. We put Japan on the back burner, which is why it took until 1945 to defeat them. The other thing, which is important, and this is unfortunately uh, goes to some degree of racism, they didn't believe the Japanese were capable of executing such an attack as Pearl Harbor because they had beliefs that the Japanese, because of the, their eyes or whatever, were not capable of flying planes the same way as Americans. This type of arrogance, which I think I mentioned the other day when we were talking about Israel, when you believe that your opponent is not capable as you are, you're setting yourself up for the type of situation that happened in Israel recently and at what happened with Pearl Harbor. And, and if I could just say one last thing, please. Um, I did worry initially when we were sanctioning Russia that we were setting ourselves up for a similar situation uh, with Russia probably, uh, possibly wanting to uh, do something to us because we've been strangling them economically. But I think that danger has receded. Uh, and hopefully it stays that way because obviously the war machines available today are much worse than in 1941. Thank well, you. you know, and thank you, David. I appreciate that. I agree with uh, a great deal of what David said there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I can't speak to the racism aspect of it, but I think there are a lot of similarities between October 7th, between September 11th. And December 7th. I mean, uh, when we talked about yesterday the fact that Israeli officials knew that Hamas was planning exactly this type of attack, and they dismissed it. They dismissed it as essentially they didn't think they were capable of it. When American officials were warned that Al-Qaeda 
was planning not exactly the type of attack, but a similar type of attack. They didn't act. The 9-11 Commission dismissed it as a failure of uh, imagination. It seems like, I I do think there's a strong case to be made that unlike Israel on October 7th and the United States on September 11th, whereas I think both those countries were caught with their pants down, basically. They ignored these warnings at their own peril. I think there's a strong case to be made that FDR provoked, not just FDR, but the American government provoked this attack. Now, it doesn't excuse Japan's conduct, not by a long shot, but I think it's worth considering. All right, we'll continue with your calls in a moment, uh, especially I know a bunch of folks want to talk about Colin Ferguson, Susan Charles Melvin. We'll get to you. Everybody that's holding will get to you. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose the lights so much brighter? Forget all your troubles, forget all your cares, so go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No final place for sure, downtown. Everything's waiting for you. Downtown. If you um, ever like to know the music that we're playing on this program, you can uh, join our Facebook group. We post the songs there. Uh, each and every morning, just go to uh, Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Hey, tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, or as I call it, Chanukah, uh, because I like to spell it with the C-H. If uh, you are celebrating, I hope you have a delightful Hanukkah. Both my wife and I are, are Christian, but my wife uh, is of Jewish uh, lineage. She never was a practicing Jew, but technically, if you go by, you know, that you consider what your mother is. So even though her mother was not a practicing Jew, the fact that she, her her mother was a Jewish person it makes both of them Jewish. And you know, according to the laws of Judaism, it makes Carmine Jewish as well. So we keep a uh, menorah in the house, and we do light it with each night of Hanukkah. My wife started this tradition, I think, about two years ago. Of each night of Hanukkah, she has a prominent Gentile light the menorah as we as we say the Hanukkah blessing. So uh, we're going to do that today. I think we have a Supreme Court justice, a New York State Supreme Court justice coming today. Then tomorrow, maybe it'll be a city councilman. Then the next day, you know, we do a different public official each day 
lighting the lighting the menorah, or it's not always a public official, but it's always a gentile. Usually, anyway, it's whoever we can get. Quite frankly, that as an excuse to come over and spend some time with us. All right, eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I've been negligent in getting to the phone calls. We're going to get to everybody. Bob is in Manhattan. What's on your mind, Bob? Well, the timeline you laid out is fabulous with Nash's book, but I don't know. Does the book mention that the plan to take over the whole Far East was formulated in 1902? It was called the Tanaka Plan, and it was the Great East Asia War. That's why they never apologized for the war. And uh, one of the primary targets originally was Kyoto, and they they didn't have the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the Council of Generals. And what they do is they try to block Stimson, but he was a personal friend of FDR's, so he bypassed him and went and said, you cannot bomb Kyoto because it's a religious capital. So that's when they changed it to one of the other cities. I don't know if Nagasaki or Hiroshima was the second choice. You know, that and- that scene of um, you know not going on uh, Kyoto, that is actually depicted in the film Oppenheimer. Did you see Oppenheimer? It was fabulous. Yeah, I so mean— well- I agree with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it again now that it's available on stream on streaming. Uh, but as for your question, no, I don't believe Nash's book does reference a plan going back as far as 1902. It uh, really covers, you know, the immediate aftermath and the immediate uh, the events immediately preceding World War II and Pearl Harbor. 800-848-9222. Melvin is in Indianapolis. Hi, Melvin. Hi, Frank. Uh, the story with uh, Colin uh, Ferguson. Uh, he was employed in Syosset, uh, New York, just next to Westbury. And uh, he worked for a company called, uh, uh, what the hell, uh, I had to wrote it down here. Uh, they made alarm products. It was called a Demco, uh, which is the abbreviation for alarm device. They made uh, the controls for burger alarms like for uh, ADT or all these other companies. So he worked there. He had a, a had an injury, and he had a claim filed with, a, with his back injury, and the company challenged it. And I don't know if he was on medication or something, but he felt that p- they were people were against him. So when he did the shooting on the train, he waited until the train crossed out of New York City into Long Island, because Mayor Dinkin was a black mayor, and he didn't want to say that the shooting took place uh, on Mayor Dinkin's watch. You know, I, I've heard that. I was never sure, and i got to ask Kubi about that, because obviously he followed the case closely. I was never sure if that was confirmed or if that was kind of uh, an urban myth. But you can confirm that. Yeah, well, the reason I followed the case, the company Alarm Device, the owner that used to be before it became a... Uh, it was sold and then sold again. Now it's currently owned by the Honeywell Corporation. But the guy that started the company was the best man at my father's wedding oh, wow. before I was born. And they were very good friends. The guy's name was Morris Coleman. Uh, he, he's dead now, but he was uh, very close to my father. So I always, you know, I did business with that company for a while. All right. Well, I appreciate the insight there, Melvin. And, and, and now about uh, Pearl Harbor, uh, the the General Hirohito, I just saw a video, uh, a documentary on that about four weeks ago. Uh, I think he's Admiral Hirohito. Right. That, well, Emperor. That designed I think, the whole attack. Right. Sure. Well, guess what college he attended? 
What well, I, I give up? What? Harvard. Okay. Well, I, that that's something. So I, I just thought I'd mention that to you. All right. I'm, uh, I'm in Indianapolis. I love your show. I'm from Crown Heights, and I listen to ABC all the time. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Please uh, keep uh, and us and up. I, and I and I think your boss is terrific. Uh, see, I, I, I completely know. agree. His on wife that is from Indianapolis. Yeah, that's right, uh, Margot. She absolutely is from uh, Indiana, and uh, she is a great lady. So, yeah, I didn't know that um, Emperor Hirohito went to Harvard. I I, I got to double check that one. I'm going to double check that one. But uh, unless he's got uh, you know uh, him confused with someone else with an, with with someone else that was involved in the planning that was not named Hirohito. But I'll look into that. 800-848-9222. Oh, just a follow-up on a, a subject that we covered that got a lot of attention. The, you remember the hockey player that died? And a lot of people called in talking about the need for neck guards. Well, now, following a death on the ice, the International Ice Hockey Federation announced that it's making neck guards mandatory for all levels of competition, including the Olympics and the men's and women's world championship. And look, I, I don't know anything about hockey, uh, let alone the safety protocols involved. But I, I, based on what everybody said, I think that is certainly good news. And I'm, it's just a shame that it took a death to bring us to this point. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Charles is in New Rochelle. Hi, Charles. Hi, good evening, Frank. Uh, fascinating show as usual. Thank you. Uh, just wanted to speak a little bit on Colin Ferguson. Actually, I was working in the press office at the New York City Transit Authority uh, about two weeks before December 7th when he called our office. His complaint was actually about the number three line coming out of Brooklyn, and he complained that it was it was actually it was it was fascinating to me because it was a racial complaint. He said that the number three service was poor because it served a black community. Uh, naturally, I said, "Well, I'll agree with you. Number three service is poor." I said, "But it goes through all communities in New York City. <laughs> it's not just a racial thing." And we had a conversation for about 20 minutes where we just, and the first thing I really discovered about this guy is he was not an idiot. He was a very intelligent, very well-educated gentleman. Uh, I spoke to him. um, I put him on speakerphone. One of my coworkers, we both spoke to him on the phone. Um, He was very satisfied with the way we spoke. Somebody said, thank you. He hung up. Uh, we found out that the next day he called up the president's office and spoke to the uh, assistant vice president of the Transit Authority, who also treated him very well. Uh, and it was a couple of weeks later that we uh, found out this was the same gentleman involved in the Long Island Railroad massacre. And actually, we were we were really shocked by it. And I had also heard that the reason he waited until the train crossed the border into Nassau County was he did not want to embarrass Mayor Dink. Right. I had heard that, too. Again, it's one of those things that you hear. And, um, you know, like the Bernard Getz shooting, there was all this myth that that, uh, occurred as a result of misinformation. I just didn't know if it was uh, confirmed. Well, that's interesting. And uh, it jives your impressions of him. It jived pretty well with what Mike Thompson said last hour. Hey, uh, Charles... Go yes. Go ahead. What were we going to say? 
I was listening to Mike, and I'm full agreement with everything he said. Uh, Charles, how did you know, and when did you realize that Colin Ferguson, the shooter, was the same person that you spoke to? I got a call from the Rail Control Center, uh, who had heard about the conversation that we had, and the president's office had with him. And evidently, they found out first who this gentleman was. They said, do you know that this was the guy you were speaking to on the phone wow. a couple of weeks ago? And I was in shock. And a couple of days later, uh, Ellis Hennigan wrote about it in Newsday. Well, that's a wild story. Charles, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate the perspective. Thank you, Frank, for the show. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Oh, got to follow up on another issue that I've been talking about for three years you know, 23andMe, 23andMe, which is one of these DNA testing websites. Now, look, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm very curious what my DNA profile would show. I mean, uh, I'd love to know if I have biological relatives that are a fairly close relation that I, you know, that I never met. You know, because uh, you go back, I'm, you know, my family's not been in this country on my mom's side very long at all. A little longer on my dad's side, but um, I'm sure there are all sorts of cousins out there that I just have no idea about. I will not do this because I am very reluctant, especially after seeing what happened with that Golden State killer. I don't know what they're going to do with my DNA. I don't know if it's going to be sold. I don't know if it's going to be hacked. I don't know if it, you know, I don't know what's going on. And I don't want to incriminate any future generations of Moranos without the police doing their due diligence. So 23andMe, which is one of these major testing websites, they've confirmed that hackers accessed the personal information of, are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? 6.9 million people. 6.9 million people who uploaded their DNA to 23andMe because they wanted to find out if they were 80% Mediterranean or 10% Ashkenazi Jewish or if they had a a secret ant that they didn't know about. 6.9 million people now have their DNA in the hands of hackers. This is exactly what I was afraid of. While hackers initially breached 14,000 profiles, which is nothing in terms of the grand scheme of things. That's, I mean, it's something if you're one of the 14,000. That's one-tenth of one percent of the company's users. They breached this by using old passwords and usernames. That just served as an entry point for millions more. So this, to me, after seeing this story... I'm even more determined not to hand my DNA over to these strangers. 800-848-9222. Susan in Queens. Hi, Susan. Yes, hi. This is about Ferguson. My mother worked for the Workers' Compensation Board at the World Trade Center. And Ferguson had a case. He used to come in all the time. He was a real pain in the ass. And he came in many, many times to reopen his case. So finally, my mother said he was a West Indian guy. Finally, they offered him $15,000 to settle his case, a lump sum. He took it, and they said to him, look, this closes out your case. You're finished. He said, okay, fine. Naturally, when the money ran out, he came back, and he made a big deal. They said, look, guy, 
You're finished. The case is closed. We're not going to reopen it. You took the lump sum. Now, the supervisor was a black woman, and she explained this to him. Now, listen to this. When we found out that it was Ferguson, my mother and her colleagues, um, he waited. They think he waited for her when she came down the elevator from the 55th or 54th floor, and he watched her walk across the World Trade lobby to get the E train, okay? She would grab the E train and go up to 34th Street, Penn Station, and get off. He probably followed her to see what train she would get. He knew what, what her schedule was, her route. He was probably waiting for her on that train, and she wasn't there that day. He was looking for her. That's what the people in my mother's office thought. Are you there? Yeah, I'm listening to you. Oh, okay. He was walking up down in the aisle looking for somebody. I had heard read that in the papers, that he was walking up the aisle, up and down the train, back and forth, look, apparently looking for somebody. And, my, and everybody in my mother's office thought that he was looking for her. Well, okay? that's... Now, by the way... By the way, this same woman had a lot of guts because a couple of years before that, a guy, a Polish guy had a case that he came in and he had a bomb. I don't know if you remember that. And so he was going to, nobody was working on his case. He wasn't getting his money. So my mother's supervisor, that woman, she said, look, I'll go over and talk to him because I'm the head supervisor. She had a lot of guts because he had a bomb. So she says to him, look, I'll take personal care of your case, all right, if you get, you know, fork over the bomb. And he did. And it wasn't a bomb. It was a a hero sandwich, Mm. okay? But my mother said at the time that nobody said anything about her. They never mentioned her name, why he was on the train looking for somebody. And that was the reason why he was probably got very frustrated when he couldn't find her and he started going crazy. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank God that uh, your mother wasn't on the train if he was indeed looking for her. And no, that's my mother wasn't on the train. The supervisor wasn't on the train. Yeah. She either left well, late right. well, or she I just, didn't I just said in. that. Yeah. And, and, but the, the one part of that that I don't know if it makes sense if he was looking for the supervisor or your mother yeah. is why, yeah. if he saw that they weren't on the train, would he just randomly shoot 25 other people? Why wouldn't he come back because the next day? Because he's a real day? pain in the ass. He was... The gentleman before said that he might have been on medication. He was hyper. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, and I'm he glad... might have not been in his right mind. Well, I'm, I'm thank you for sharing that story, Susan. Well, it clearly was not in his right mind. Anybody that's shooting uh, 25 people and who and would have kept shooting more people had he not been tackled by very brave passengers is absolutely not in their right mind. All right. Uh, let me share with you my football picks for the week. I was negligent a day. I was a day late in doing that last week. I am. Uh, I'm doing pretty well in my football pool. I'm either tied for. I'm either tied for uh, third or second. It's. Uh, I'm. The, see, there's one. No, there's. I have 105 points, which puts me in second place because the pers- the, the top score is 106 points, but there's two people. Chad and Bob Capano, who works for our company, actually, who has 106 points. So if I have 105, does that make me second or third? I guess it makes me third because I'm the third one. All right. So um, so I, I got eight predictions right last week. And so I'm very much in the thick of it. I don't know what the prize is if I if I win at the at the end, but I'm only one shy of uh, of the lead at, the, at this point. All right. 
So Thursday night, Pittsburgh is favored six and a half over New England. I'm going with the Steelers for evening shade and um, and Burt Reynolds. On uh, Sunday, uh, Cleveland is playing Jacksonville. I don't have a strong feeling either way here. I'll go with Cleveland because I've been to Cleveland. It's a very interesting town. Uh, Baltimore is playing the Rams. Absolutely going with Baltimore. Love the Ravens because of our listeners at WCBM. Detroit is playing the Bears. I am absolutely going with the Bears because of our great listeners at the Superstation AM 910. The Saints are playing the Panthers. I'm always against the Saints because I hate when people say who dat. So I'm going with the Panthers. The Colts are playing the Bengals. Eh. Uh, we had a nice caller, Melvin, from Indianapolis before, and he reminded me that our station's uh, first lady, Margot, is from Indiana. So I'll go with I'll go with the I'll go with the uh, the cults there. Atlanta is playing Tampa Bay. I have a neighbor and my friend Mike Levy that are both very big Tampa Bay fans. I'll go with Tampa Bay there. Uh, Houston is playing the Jets, and it's probably an exercise in futility because Houston's favored by six and a half. But uh, I'll go with the Jets. Uh, you have San Francisco uh, playing Seattle. I will go with San Francisco there. San Francisco heavily favored, and I think that's most people expect San Francisco to win big. Minneapolis is playing the Raiders. Very tough because I like both teams and I like both cities. But, look, Minnesota is the state that gave us Jesse Ventura, so I have to go with Minneapolis. The Chargers are, going, are against the Broncos. Chargers are favored by two and a half. I'll go with the Chargers. Chiefs versus the Bills, very tough because I like both of these teams too. I got to go with the uh, least politically correct team in this one, though, the Chiefs. Uh, Cowboys are playing the Eagles. I'll go with the Eagles because uh, my friend Anthony is a big Eagles fan, and uh, I am godfather to his daughter. And I think I um, I haven't yet gotten her a Christmas gift yet. So if uh, she is basking in her father's happiness over the Eagles, maybe she'll – she won't worry that my Christmas gift hasn't arrived yet. Uh, and Monday night, it's actually very rare. There's two games on Monday night. You have Miami, which is heavily favored over Tennessee by 13 and a half. I'm going with Tennessee because of our great affiliates there. And you have Green Bay that is favored over the Giants. I'll be a homer and go with the Giants. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls and talk Norman Lear. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
is Steely Dan. Uh, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, join the Facebook group. Uh, just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, we list the songs there each and every morning after the program. I'm going to get back to your calls in a moment. Three open lines. I did want to mention, you know, I came home yesterday, and it was uh, very interesting because um, my wife was kind of awake when I got home, which was unusual. Got home around 6.30 or so, going to bed, and she sang how Prissy, that's our last remaining cat, was meowing all night. And me, she was meowing, and she went downstairs to keep her company, and uh, she, my wife just felt she was lonely because we used to have three cats. Two of them recently passed away. Now we just have the one. So my wife, even though she wanted to sleep at 1130, midnight or so, she was downstairs. She's petting Prissy and watching television and so forth. And Prissy was meowing, meowing up a storm, but she seemed to like when my wife was down there with her. And then same thing happens a, a little later. My wife goes back to bed. Prissy is meowing and meowing and meowing. So then when my wife finally wakes up for the day, around 7 o'clock, she goes downstairs with Carmine, and she sees that the door to Prissy's litter box, which is in her office, was closed. So the reason she was meowing like crazy is because she had to do her business. And I don't even think she had an accident which is pretty remarkable, at least not one that we've discovered. But it, she held it in for hours because we were at the uh, community board Christmas party. So we had a babysitter. Carmine was probably running around. He was cl- opening and closing doors, which he likes to do. And I guess one of the doors that he closed was the door to Prissy's litter box. So um, she was locked out of her own litter box. But she said when my wife went down with her, Prissy didn't kind of go over by the door and hang out by the door, which would have been a clue for her. She just sat there on the couch with her. So I think she was happy to have my uh, wife's company, but uh, we felt bad. And come to think of it, my wife asked me before I left, make sure you check that door and make sure it's not closed. And I forgot to do that. So now when I get home, that's the first thing I'm going to do is make sure I check that door. But I felt bad for uh, for Prissy. I uh, did feel good in that I was able to get a haircut for the first time in a while, I don't know what it is with my hair. My hair grows like a chia pet. It just grows out, out and upward. I mean, it really is. It really is something. And the um, so I finally got a haircut, and the the barber complimented me on my hair. I mean, what is he going to say when he's expecting a good Christmas tip, right? But he said, oh, I wish I had a head of hair like you. It, it always, And he had all these explanations for why it's such a great head of hair. I wish it was a little less gray, but that's neither neither here nor there. 800-848-9222. Alfredo is in Newark. Hello, Alfredo. Yes, Frank. How are you? Frank, uh, I didn't watch the movie Opel Helmet, but uh, uh, I always wonder... Japan didn't know that the uh, USA has a nuclear bomb. How how can they take that chance? Well, I, I mean, I think they're, uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think they was there was a realization that multiple sides were trying to develop the atomic bomb, including the Germans. 
Uh, so I don't know what level of intelligence they had uh, prior to the the bombing. I also don't know, uh, quite frankly, Alfredo, if there was an appreciation for exactly how devastating and how destructive the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki actually was. I mean, it's one thing to hear the destruction described. Uh, You might think a country is bluffing or something along those lines. It's quite another thing to to see it firsthand and experience it. But Alfredo, I I have no idea, quite frankly. You know, it's a good question. 800-848-9222. Rich is on Staten Island. Hi, Rich. Hi, good morning, Frank. I just wanted to just point out it's amazing how there was always a an obsession with the Western culture from the uh, from the Japanese citizens. And uh, Babe Ruth actually toured Japan prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And, uh, you know, years later, Hirohito himself visited Disney and was actually a Disney fanatic. And there was a uh, there's some pictures of him like actually touring Disney, walking down with Snow White. And uh, it also is another thing to point out that the United States, there are haters of this country. That is a classic example of how the United States uh, helped rebuild the, their, uh, the defeated enemy. Germany, Japan, the Marshall Plan, it's a classic example of how uh, great this country actually is and humanitarian. I think that's a great point, Rich, and uh, I think a lot of other countries in the similar situation that the United States was in would not have behaved the the same way. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you, Rich. Talking a little bit about Pearl Harbor on uh, December 7th. We're going to talk uh, Norman Lear in uh, just a bit. 800-848-9222. If you want to share your, not, I don't even want to say memories, but your analysis of what made Norman Lear and his programming so special, be happy to hear from you. Jeff is in Brooklyn. Hi, Jeff. How are you, sir? Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, listen, my uncle was out at Pearl Harbor. Uh, he was setting, He was involved in setting up the radar at Pearl Harbor. They saw the fleet coming for at least 48 hours, okay, and they were frantically calling, uh, you know, Washington with warning, serious warnings about this, this this fleet coming closer and closer. That's the first thing. The second thing is they sunk a Japanese mini-sub in Pearl Harbor uh, about 24 hours before the uh, attack. So the idea that they didn't know it was coming. So Come you on, think they guys. knew? You think American officials knew? Absolutely. Unless my, unless, unless everybody, all my, all my uncle, all his radar experts, all align, which okay. I don't, I don't believe. Jeff, thank you. Well, look, I can't compete with that kind of anecdotal observation, but there were ten official inquiries, and they came to the conclusion that they didn't know. I think they provoked. I don't think they knew. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, 
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, the man responsible for classic television moments, classic moments of Americana, like this one, is no more. Here's a guy who's sure to agree with me. Lionel, what do your people think about guns? Well, that depends on who's holding them. you be against gun control with all the assassinations? Look at it, the Kennedys and Martin Luther King. And what about the shooting of Governor Wallace? I'm saying, maybe Governor Wallace wouldn't have got shot if he had a rod in his miss. <laughs> what? Because the governor was there, he could have shot first. Archie, what would he be doing walking around in a crowd with a gun? What was the other bum doing in a crowd with a gun? Archie, you're talking about a human being who may be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Yes, and if that human being had had a rod, then the other human being would be in a wheelchair. <laughs> uh, Norman Lear, a writer and producer who revolutionized television with really, uh, you know, they use that term groundbreaking all the time, but his work really was groundbreaking. He revolutionized television with these groundbreaking sitcoms in the 1970s. He's passed away at the age of 101. His shows, starting with All in the Family, depicted uh, social upheaval, political upheaval that everybody that was watching at the time could relate to, but I think it's withstood this test of time. When I watch All in the Family reruns now, and uh, I didn't become a fan of All in the Family during its first run, I became a fan in uh, reruns. Whenever there was a Mets rain delay, they would play All in the Family, and that's how I got into All in the Family. It still holds up today. It really does. Because here you have uh, Archie Bunker, who is this uh, curmudgeon, He's uh, basically a bigot, but he's an incredibly lovable bigot. And that is really the genius of Norman Lear. The central character, I don't want to say he hated blacks and hated Jews and hated uh, other people, but he definitely viewed people that were not like him as less than. He's the central character, and he's hopelessly flawed because of that character defect but he's also so relatable you really do relate him to so many of the people in your life maybe you're a grandparent an uncle a parent and he's likable he's likable even though he's a racist and even though the a racist is the central character of the show basically it was a very progressive show the lesson Each week was basically how, oh, look at how dumb Archie's being for having sort of backwards views. Whoever it is bought Bowman's house must be doing pretty good if we can lay out eight, ten dollars a day for a cleaning woman. Ten dollars? Oh, they're getting more than that for good cleaning people today. Maybe she's a live-in maid. Well, what are you talking about, Edith? The only people nowadays can afford live-in help are rich people and Jews. (laughs) (laughs) They reached his shows, Norman Lear's shows, reached vast audiences that would really be unthinkable for television shows today. At one point in the mid-'70s, Norman Lear had eight series on television. Now think about that. Now, I mean, maybe that's not unfathomable. There's a lot of guys these days that are prolific. People like uh, uh, Dick Wolf from the Law and Order franchise. A couple of other people are very prolific. 
the um, the fellow that uh, had all those reality shows on who that produced The Apprentice at one time he had a lot of uh, a lot of shows on simultaneously. It was um, Mark Burnett. That's who I'm thinking of. Mark Burnett had a bunch of shows on, but what made it amazing was the sheer number of audience that he controlled. In the mid '70s, Lear had eight series on television watched by. 120 million Americans each week. That's more than half of the country's population. Can you imagine anything like that now? Just to put that in perspective, this year's Super Bowl had about 113 million viewers, according to Nielsen. So more people were watching Norman Lear's shows each week than were watching the Super Bowl this year. He had a lot of other shows aside from uh, All in the Family as well. Uh, certainly uh, Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons. Uh, I love love that character of George Jefferson. Blonde. Don't get mad at me because you started it. I know it. I want you to keep putting me down. Huh? Look, I can't get nowhere with this Mr. Hendrix, but I want to keep him here. All he seems to like is the way you keep mouthing at me. Huh? Look, stop hawing and listen. <laughs> Now, when he gets off the phone, service our drinks, and then keep insulting me, okay? Wait a minute. Am I hearing this right? You want me to insult you? Yeah. I'll give you 20 bucks if you do a good job. 20 bucks? Right. Look, Mr. Jefferson, keep your 20 bucks. This one's on me. Here you are. Oh, thank you. Florence, now you know I like my scotch on the rocks. Then why don't you pour it over your head? Hey, she got a big sense of humor? <laughs> Anything's big to you. He's so short, he had to stand on his toes to put his hat on. <laughs> Boss, I don't even wear a hat. That's because you can't find one big enough to fit your fat head. <laughs> and ugly. Child, Mr. Jefferson is so ugly that when he used to work in a bakery, they used to dip his face in the batter to make the animal cookies. <laughs> You know, I'm a little annoyed with the New York Times obituary people because they uh, they had a photo in the obituary, which I tweeted about. You could see it on my Twitter at Frank Morano, where they had a photo of Sandra Day O'Connor being sworn in in 1981 by the chief justice and meeting Sandra Day O'Connor's family. And they said, oh, here she is with her family pictured with. Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Now, William Rehnquist was not the Chief Justice. Warren Burger was. It was a picture of Warren Burger, and the caption was was William Rehnquist. Now, anybody can make a mistake, but after you saw my tweet, which I tagged the New York Times obituary people in, you know it's a mistake. Issue a retraction. As far as I can tell, there's been no retraction. Additionally, when I was talking with Pat Cooper's wife the other day, she felt that they did a very poor job on the obituary for Pat Cooper and that uh, they included a lot of stuff that was just plain inaccurate, plain wrong. But the one thing that I think the New York Times deserves credit for in their Norman Lear obituary, and I haven't read their obituary yet, but I did read the headline, is it's such an apt description. Norman Lear, TV's greatest American. TV's greatest American. That is so on the money. 
I don't know how anybody can dispute that. And I think, I mean, what an honor in a medium of television that's watched by hundreds of millions of people to master it the way that Norman Lear did. It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Norman Lear, as uh, many of you may know, did serve in the Army Air Forces. He served in World War II, did a three-year tour of duty in the in the military. And after World War II, you know what Norman Lear's career was? Public relations. Public relations. And he said that the career choice was inspired by his Uncle Jack. And he said that uh, his Uncle Jack would flip him a quarter every time he saw him. He was a press agent. So he wanted to be a press agent. That was his only role model. He figured this guy's got quarters. And, uh, you know, I want to have quarters to give to people. So all he wanted to be when he was growing up was the guy that could flip quarters to his nephew. So he decided to move to California to restart his career in publicity. He drove with his toddler daughter across the country. I really, you got to give a guy so much credit for that. In the middle of a career that's doing okay, to take a risk like that and drive, he's from Connecticut originally, to drive across the country to California when you have a toddler, not seek out a job that has a little more job security, that's extraordinary. So his first night in Los Angeles, he uh, stumbles into a theater production, a 90-seat theater, uh, and one of the actors in the play was Sidney Chaplin the son of Charlie Chaplin. And, you know, they sat in front of Norman Lear, and then they got to meet, he got to meet Charlie Chaplin. And he had a uh, a cousin who was married to a a comedy writer, or at least an aspiring comedy writer. So the cousin, or the wife's cousin, um, teamed up to sell home furnishings door-to-door. That's what Norman Lear did with his cousin-in-law. They sold furniture. Door to door. (laughs) You know what they called their company? The Gans Brothers. And then they later sold family photos door to door. So throughout the 50s, Lear and his cousin, they turned out comedy sketches or TV appearances of Martin and Lewis, Rowan and Martin, and others. And they frequently wrote for Martin and Lewis. And then he kind of got... He kind of got a little bit of a, a head of steam to him when he started doing sketches. He did a film um, called, uh, he wrote a film called Divorce American Style. But obviously the game changer for him was All in the Family. Uh, All in the Family, Sanford and Str- Son, a level of dominance in television. Uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Maud, What's Happening, Good Times. A level of dominance that I think has been unmatched by anybody in history. And he even did a show that I just loved, Different Strokes. The Honorable, me, champ, can I come in? It's him! It's him! Come down, Ali. Come down, Ali. Come down, Ali. Come down, Ali. Come in, champ. He's awfully weak, champ. Oh. <laughs> Hi there, Arnold. Who's that? It's me, the champ. Joe Lewis? <laughs> this kid's delirious. <laughs> no, it's me, Muhammad Ali. 
You'll have to speak louder. I can't hear you over those golden hearts. Golden hearts? Champ? Yeah? Could I ask a favor while I still got breath in my little lungs? Yeah, what is it? Could you autograph a picture for me? Be glad to. Here's a pen. Boy, you got quicker hands than me. So Norman Lear was just an incredible person, was still active literally until this year. He was overseeing a revival of Who's the Boss, I believe, with Tony Danza. And uh, they're doing, they were doing a reboot of Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman was a fanatical fan of American history. In fact, he purchased uh, a copy of the Declaration of Independence for $8.1 million, one of the first published copies of the Declaration of Independence. And then he was, um, he was, the, uh, he was also the voice of Benjamin Franklin on the TV show South Park. Very liberal Democrat. A uh, very big supporter of First Amendment causes. The the only time that he did not support a Democratic candidate for president was in 1980 when he supported uh, John B. Anderson over Jimmy Carter because he considered the Car- Carter administration to be, in his words, a complete disaster. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Tony Danza was on this program about a year ago. And one of the things that we talked about was Norman Lear, because uh, he was very much a Norman Lear discovery. And the show that he was most famous for, Who's the Boss, and Taxi, both of them, were both Norman Lear shows. This Saturday just passed was uh, Norman Lear's 100th birthday. Wow. And uh, um, they had a party, an ABC special for him uh, at the Roosevelt Hotel in the in the ballroom where they had the first Academy Awards. It's really this really incredible place. And he's amazing. I mean, I want you to understand though, he's just unbelievable. But um, I got, uh, you know, uh, his his partner, Brent Miller, came to see my show at the Carlisle. And in the show, I do a song called I Don't Remember Ever Growing Up. Hmm. And it's, you know, obviously it, it works for Norman. Um, and by the way, for people who don't know, not only did Norman Lear have six six shows in the top 10 at the same time. And remember, if you had to have a show in, to have a show in the top 10 at that time, you had to have 35 million viewers, 35 million. So imagine having six, 35 million. Uh, I mean, the influence is unbelievable. But aside from that, you know, when Pearl Harbor was born, bombed, he was in college. He quit college. He 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 enlisted, and he flew fifty-seven bombing missions in a B-17 as a radio operator. And he only had to fly to, uh, excuse me, fifty-two. Only had to fly thirty-seven, but stuck around for fifty-two. So it was a great thing. He's an old friend, and he's involved in the Who's the Boss show. And oh, and when wow. I kissed him after I sang, and I sang at the uh, at the thing, which was nerve-wracking because of what an audience. But uh, I, uh, we, we hugged and kissed, and he said to me, Tony, to be continued. So it was just a wonderful <laughs> night. 800-848-9222. Uh, I mean, what else can you say about a, a guy like Norman Lear? I mean, uh, the guy was a legend. Simple as that. Simple as that. He was a magazine publisher uh, he had, for about 20 years. Godparent to uh, Katie Seagal, <laughs> the actress Katie Seagal. Amazing man. An absolutely amazing man. Uh, they profiled him on CBS Sunday morning not long ago. 
and he talked about the key to comedy and at least his take on the key to comedy. Hold it, hold it, hold it. What are you doing here? Why? What about the other foot? There ain't no sock on it. I'll get to it. One of the greatest gifts in my uh, entertainment career. <laughs> Don't you know that the whole world puts on a sock and a sock and a shoe and a shoe? <laughs> A classic scene Carol O'Connor and Rob Reiner had improvised during a rehearsal. I like to take care of one foot at a time. To be able to laugh in a rehearsal at something you hadn't expected, and then <laughs> to stand to the side or behind an audience laughing and watch them, their bodies, a couple of hundred people as one, when something makes them laugh. I don't think I've ever seen a more spiritual moment than an audience in the belly laugh. Hey, we should all be so lucky to be that sharp at 100. You know what I think one of the keys is, honestly? I think um, the one of the keys is just staying active. Staying active, whether it's professionally or creatively or in uh, in other areas, I think, that is the key. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Original Rick is in Original New Jersey. Hello. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. <clears throat> I just want to say a quick thing uh, because I just saw it. Have you ever seen the episode where uh, Archie and Meathead are locked in a storeroom with a bottle of booze? Absolutely. I absolutely remember that one. That one, I, that really shows off. What an incredible actor uh, Carol O'Connor was. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he played a serious part there, you know, and he played it so well. You would almost think he was drunk and they were really having a conversation. It, 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 you know, he I believe he had an English accent, really, didn't he? Wait, wait, Lear? One time? No, 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 uh, O'Connor. No, it was sort of, um, I mean, the, his, the way that when he wasn't in character, it was kind of um, a transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent. I, wouldn't, right. I definitely wouldn't characterize it as English. Okay, it was just sophisticated. So yeah, it was, it was know, almost yeah. like a Gore Vidal uh, kind of a thing or a William F. Buckley kind of a deal. Right, right, right. You, you have to be a brilliant actor to play a moron. You know what I'm saying? Um, he, 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 if, if you're a moron, you can't play someone stupid. He played someone stupid brilliantly. But I was just wondering if you'd ever seen that, because that was the first time I saw it, and was like, this guy can act, you know? I know he played heavies in movies sometimes, but, you know, you can play a heavy. I've seen other actors are not that good play heavies, but this, he really shone. And I was just like, okay, this is why this show, not only the writing, but the actors were brilliant. Man, I just wanted to chime in. You know? Yeah, I thank you, uh, Rick. Appreciate that. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Steve's in Jersey City. Hi, Steve. Hey, good morning, Frank. Um, Norman was a huge CCR fan. He loved Credence, and he was friends with John Fogarty. Now, when John Fogarty first signed the contract back in like sixty seven, sixty eight, with the company called Fantasy Records. He didn't know what he was signing. Um, I read his, his autobiography, and he says, I was a kid. I just They said, here, sign here. You're going to be a rock star. So he signed. What he did was he signed away the rights and the catalog to all of CCR's hits. So when CCR broke up, he made nothing. Oh. Norman blew, Norman blew close to $100 million, bought the catalog from Fantasy Records, and just gave it to, uh, to Fogarty as a gift. You're kidding. I had no idea nope. about that. 
just get and now Fogarty makes every penny all the royalties once again from CCR. He just, he loved Fogarty. He just loved the music. He 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 called uh, Norman Lear called CCR pure Americana music. He absolutely loved it. And uh, when he found out what how Fogarty was screwed over, he just said, "I got to do something about this." He bought the whole catalog from Fantasy Records, gave it to Fogarty, said, "Here's the gift. It's back to you." That is wild. I had no idea. I had no idea about that, Steve. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Rocco's in Saratoga. What's on your mind, Rocco? Good evening, Professor Morano. We have the best audience on radio. Did not know that about Norman Lear buying the catalog of C. Clear Water Revival. Credence. Clearwater Revival. Very interesting. You got the smartest audience out there. Learn something every night. That's why you got to listen all the time. Although Rocco is doing his best to learn. disprove that very right. theory, isn't um, he? Anyway, Norman Lear, greatest producer ever, ever, ever. And a great American. Served in World War II. That many bombing missions? No one does that many. You don't survive that many bombing missions, frankly. That's why after 37, you get your ticket home, because they don't expect you to make 37, okay? And he kept on going. And he was Jewish. He was Jewish. Israel forever. Don't forget. Israel from river to sea to shining sea. All right. Thank you, Rocco. Appreciate that. All right. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Hey, you know who the person of the year is? I'll tell you. And um, I'd be curious who you think it should have been. It was not me, nor was it Sid Rosenberg, much to his chagrin. But, um, you know, I think it's a pretty good pick. It's not, if you ask me to name someone, it's not who I would have named. But I think it's an apt pick. We'll get into it in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. After the hour, this is The Other Side of Midnight. Whatever time it is, it's always The Other Side of Midnight on this show. We thank you for listening, especially uh, all of our many listeners over at uh, Talk 1400 WOND. If uh, time permits, a little bit later, I'd love to talk about Kelsey Grammer being the uh, Grand Marshal in that uh, parade down the boardwalk. It was so cool. I was so sorry I couldn't be down there for that. And you know who was riding in the car right behind him? 
our man, A.C. Mike, A.C. Mike Lopez, who you can hear on WOND every afternoon from uh, 12 to 2. He's a close friend of mine. He's going to be a big uh, staple at New Year's Eve Eve this year. But uh, we'll, we'll chat about that later if there's time. You know, I work odd hours, obviously. And I don't know if this is how you are when you're working odd hours. But I'll be honest, when I leave here and I'm driving home, I'm exhausted. I am absolutely exhausted. Now, I'm usually never in danger of nodding off except on Mondays. So on Mondays, as soon as I feel myself getting drowsy to the point that my eyelids are getting a little heavy, I pull over and I will sleep because of the transition from weekend to weekday. So Mondays are the toughest day. But most days when I'm driving home, I'm just tired. I'm not in danger of falling asleep while driving. I'm just tired. And then as soon as I fall asleep, I, excuse me, as soon as I get home, I fall asleep and I sleep incredibly soundly most times. So yesterday, I'm driving home. I don't feel tired at all. I am wide awake, wide awake, energetic. Uh, my, my brain is going on full, you know, full throttle. I'm thinking about people to call, thinking about show stuff for the show, thinking about research I want to do, thinking about all sorts of things. And, um... Thinking, wow, that's unusual. Why am I this energetic and vivacious at this time of the morning? Which is, for most people, if you work a regular nine to five schedule, it's like midnight for most people, basically. So I'm driving. I'm thinking, you know, I think I got a full eight hours of sleep yesterday, and maybe that's it. Maybe I should just try and do that again. Maybe it's the eight hours of sleep. Great. Driving home, I get into bed, and I lie down. And something happens that almost never happens when I get home. I can't fall asleep. I am wide awake. Wide awake. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Do I have stuff on my mind? I mean, sure you do, but usually not stuff that keeps me from sleeping. And then I realize. I realize that what happened was when I went to the community board Christmas party the night before... We had this big meal. We had dessert. And with dessert, I had an espresso. Now, if you listen to the show, you know I am down to one, maybe two cups of coffee a week, and it's generally on the weekend. I don't drink coffee during the week anymore. And this is exactly why, because it usually keeps me up. But there was just something about the vibe at that Christmas party that I figured, all right, I mean, it's got get dessert. Everyone's got this big meal. Uh, what's a little espresso helps the digestion? A single espresso, a little little cup. Because I'm used to, back when I was doing four, five, six cups of coffee a day, I was used to you know having a pretty high caffeine tolerance. A regular espresso wouldn't even phase me. But sure enough, that espresso, it kept me it kept me awake. It really did. Even though I had the espresso at 9 p.m. and then I, I was trying to get to bed at 7.30 a.m., it still kept me awake. So it's probably, you know, like when you're a drug addict and you get over heroin and then you go out and fall and then you think you can still do the same amount of heroin that you did when you were doing it regularly. And then what happens? You overdose. Because, no, your body has developed a new level of tolerance. That's how I think I am with caffeine now, for better or worse. So I'm going to make a concerted effort to use caffeine responsibly in the near future. And then because I didn't get enough sleep, I was, of course, exhausted all day yesterday. I went to the dentist yesterday, 
I literally started falling asleep in the dentist chair. Literally started falling asleep. And they keep saying, oh, I'll be right with you, Frank. They're in their other room getting the x-ray stuff ready, getting all sorts of things. Oh, I'll be right with you. I said, no, 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 it's okay. Take your time. And I'm just closing my eyes. I said, let them take their time. Let me get a minute or two of sleep. And then, of course, the uh, dental hygienist comes. Very nice lady. I've been going to her for years. In fact, she's really the primary reason I still go to this dentist. And uh, she said, well, you look tired today. Well, I mean, what kind of thing is that to say to someone? You might as well just say you look like crap, right? I mean, that's okay, well, I am tired. You know why? Because it's it's 5.30 p.m. and I'm used to being, you know, awake at 5 a.m. I am tired. But the good news was very clean bill of health on the teeth, no cavities, and uh, my I was praised for my flossing habits. And the only issue was the... Um, Dental hygienist said, I have to make more of an effort to chew on both sides of my mouth. I had a little bit more of a tartar buildup on my left side than my right side. And she said that happens when you're used to just chewing on your right side. You don't use the left side and the food or the tartar. It just kind of hangs out there. So lesson learned to me. So now I'm making an effort to chew on my left side. But then the dentist comes in. And by the way, this dentist confirmed what my sister's dentist told her, that she does have one of the top 1% of teeth, of teeth, sets of teeth in the world, where she's never had a cavity, never had braces, and has all four of her wisdom teeth. I mean, I she is the only, the only person I've ever met that has all three of those distinctions. And I asked these people, is that really that rare? They said, yeah, we've never seen it, never seen it. I've I've had a cavity. But the dentist comes in, and I don't think my teeth are so great. But the dentist comes in, looks around at the teeth, asks, anything bothering you? No. And looks around. He says, you know what? You have perfect teeth. You have beautiful teeth. You should be on television instead of radio because television stars would kill for your teeth. Now, honestly, I don't think my teeth are that great. I have uh, one front tooth that's a little bit extended versus where the other one is. You know, I uh, didn't wear my retainer enough, so I did wear braces when I was in high school, but, you know, my mouth is still, I think, a little out of whack. I don't think my teeth are that great, but the dentist did. So when I got home, I had gotten a haircut, gotten complimented on my hair, and I'd gotten uh, cleaning and x-rays of the dentist and gotten complimented on my, my teeth. I said to my wife, I said, honey, you are dating a man whose hair and teeth have both been praised by professionals. And she said, I don't know how I got so lucky. Neither do I. Neither do I. What can I say? But everything that continues to grow or be identifiable after you die, I am doing great. Teeth, hair, doing great. Skin, height, weight, eh. That's not so great. But honestly, isn't teeth and hair where it counts? I think it is. 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, I think it was original Rick that brought up what Carol O'Connor sounded like when he wasn't acting. Well, Carol O'Connor was a big, you know, like Norman Lear, he was a liberal. So he was a big supporter of John Lindsay. And when John Lindsay ran for president in 1972, 
He recognized the incredible influence that Carol O'Connor might have, and he recognized the visibility and the name recognition and the face recognition that Carol O'Connor had. So he had Carol O'Connor record a series of commercials for his presidential campaign. So here's Carol O'Connor for John Lindsay back in 1972. Hello, I'm Carol O'Connor. If you're a young American, listen to an old-fashioned one. For 25 years, young Americans have undeclared wars. We've lost 100,000 of you kids and a half million more have been wounded. We didn't vote through Congress to fight these wars as the Constitution requires. Those lives were lost because some president decided to achieve his foreign policy violently, radically, illegally. And we've seen in the last few weeks how quickly a foreign policy can change. But the lives that are lost, the billions of dollars drained from our neighborhoods, we can never bring back. John Lindsay wants a well-defended, secure America. But he knows these radical foreign policy wars make America insecure. He wants our men and money working to build America here. So he's my candidate for president. And he did other commercials where he would stick the cigar in his mouth like Archie Bunker and then uh, he would go into the Archie Bunker voice. So that's what Carol O'Connor sounded like when he wasn't acting. There you go. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to John in Freehold. Hi, John. Hey, Frank. Um, just first off, I hope you have a good Hanukkah and Christmas and New Year's and all that. So Thank you. you. Thanks a lot. But... um. So first, um, on, on the education thing, there's a in Russia, there's a child uh, cartoon. It's called the uh, Leopold, which is a uh, Leopold the cat, and um, it's for children like five and under. And in the in the cartoon, they have like a the mice go after the cat, and they're always drawing in the sand like trigonometry plans and you got sine and cosine and like all this stuff and multiplication so you know in in russia in kindergarten they learn multiplication whereas here they start learning it around like second grade third wow. grade but um uh, that's one or two uh archie bunker uh i love that show what i loved about it was he would say like um you know kind of in today's world it'd be more racist and bigoted but Whenever he would say stuff like that, it was always challenged with, uh, you know, Meathead would always challenge him or his daughter. So you got like a balance right. of old versus new. And I don't know if you knew, but um, what, uh, Meathead, uh, Dingbat, and uh, Stifle Yourself, those were all things that uh, Norman Lear's father told him. No, so I actually didn't know that. Those, that's, that's interesting. That's where he got those phrases from. That's wild. I, I appreciate that, John. I didn't know that. Thank you. 800-848-9222. I did want to play this. Uh, this was interesting. Congressman Brandon Williams, Republican of New York, was caught on camera threatening a former staffer at a lobbying firm's holiday party. I mean, first of all, it's always interesting that all these congressmen end up at all these lobbying firm uh, holiday parties. Is it any wonder that these lobbyists own Washington? And Brandon Williams was caught on camera vowing to, quote, end every relationship the ex-aide has. So Congressman Williams' actions at the party, which was hosted by BGR Group, 
have since earned him the condemnation of many others, including ousted Congressman George Santos, who said Williams was engaging in unethical behavior, if anybody knows it's George Santos, in his confrontation with the former chief of staff. By the way, you know how much George Santos made in uh, Cameo? We, you know, Noam Layden and I were trying to figure this out, how much he would make. I said if he kept up at a relatively conservative pace that he would make within 40 days, 800 grand. You know how much he's made in three days of doing this? $200,000. $200,000. Now, nobody's taking George Santos's word for that. George, uh, but it was confirmed by Cameo to the press when they asked about it, and they produced receipts. $200,000. He's made more in three days than he would in an entire year of being in Congress. He certainly is going to need the money for his legal bills, that's for sure. But so video posted online by a Syracuse University student reporter showed Congressman Williams coming face-to-face with a man while pointing his finger at his face. The stricken-looking former staffer, who's been identified as uh, Williams' former chief of staff, Michael Gordon, tried to tell the irate congressman, I haven't done anything. But Williams looked him in the eyes and said, you F with my family, I'll end every relationship you have. Every single one. Uh, Here's a little bit of the audio of Congressman Williams. Tell me if you think this is out of line for how you should treat a former staffer. Tell me if you think this is out of line for how you should behave at a Christmas party. Listen to this. You understand me? You understand me? You think I don't know? Hey, why don't you get the police in? The guy sounds like a lunatic. I don't know much about this fellow, but I haven't heard a congressman this unhinged since Michael Grimm. So Gordon responds, I don't know what your... William cuts him off. Do you understand me? You think I don't know? So the confrontation was then cut off when a woman intervened and asked, excuse me? At that point, the freshman congressman asked the unidentified woman, why don't you get the police in? He then turns towards the man filming the confrontation and batted down the camera. This guy's a lunatic. Gordon, who also helped Williams win election in his Syracuse area district last year, said the congressman knocked the phone out of his hand and Gordon walked away to avoid escalating the fight. Congressman Williams has since claimed Gordon said incredibly vile things about his wife and daughter leading to the confrontation on video. Stephanie Williams' wife also said she felt violated by the ordeal and that one of the two staffers had previously lived in their home for more than five months. She told Semaphore, I fed him, we welcomed him in our home, and we worshipped with him. I mean, I am overwhelmed with grief. So, I mean, why not... Turn the other cheek. Walk away. What do you need this confrontation for? I don't get it. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, what do you make of that behavior by Congressman Williams there? All right, well, it's a little outrageous, I think. Yeah, I mean, not, I mean. Yeah. All right, well, thank you. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze always says a lot by saying a little. Always. Bob is in Baltimore. What's on your mind, Bob? 
Oh, um, uh, Frank, good morning. Yeah, this is about with uh, Norman Lear. Norman Lear uh, had a show on for a very short time. And uh, actually, you know, of course, this air city, Baltimore, it was like its namesake. It was called Hot L Baltimore. And it was his first failure and his only failure on television. And one of the reasons why is because it, uh, it had a gay couple in 1975. That was unheard of. And the other thing that's interesting, too, is that this show did not air in Baltimore because we were the last people left in the country that had a censor board here in the city. Wow. So the show that he did about Baltimore, which he thought was terrific, but you're right, was his first flop. That didn't even that didn't even air in Baltimore. No, you had to um, you had to watch it from the Washington affiliate of ABC at the time. We had this crazy, insane woman that was still around the 1980s. That was uh, was the censor board, and she was the last the last of them. She wielded a lot of power uh, with the church and all these other different people, but this show never made it here in Baltimore. Did you Isn't see that- it? Oh, yeah, I watched it from um, um, Channel 7 in um, Washington, D.C. at the time. What did you think of it? I thought it was great. It had a great cast. It had, uh, um, let's see, it had Charlotte Ray. It had James Cromwell. It had, um, oh, a number of characters. Yeah. Great characters. Like like I said, I never never saw it, but uh, Norman Lear always said that he liked it. He thought it was a very... A very good show. Hey, Bob, thanks for that information. I wouldn't have known Alrighty, that. Alrighty, take care. Thank you. Take care. 800-848-9222. Well, the Time Magazine, do they still call it Time Magazine? Uh, I, the Time Person of the Year is none other than Taylor Swift. I think it's a choice that makes sense. Um, Taylor Swift has impacted everything movies music television you name it i mean she's uh, voting i mean she's really maybe the most influential american period not just this year but right now she might be the most influential american there is so i think it's probably a good choice i um this is the first entertainer ever by the way to be a solo honoree. If you were just saying who was the biggest newsmaker of the year, because that's what the Time Magazine Person of the Year is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be the person that we like the most. It's not supposed to be the nicest guy or gal. It's supposed to be the person that did the, you know, was the most significant news person. I think my pick would have been, um, you know, initially I was going to say it would be Elon Musk. But Elon Musk was just it a couple of years ago. So uh, can they keep always picking Elon Musk? No. But I really do think if you're looking for someone that is making news in the most different categories, it's got to be Elon Musk. All right. So let's say you don't count Elon Musk. My pick probably would have been Benjamin Netanyahu. For starters, what he started the year with, with this incredible political comeback, To become prime minister again, that was not only remarkable, but incredibly newsworthy. Then uh, being charged with corruption and being in the news with this corruption trial and then trying to change the rules for the Supreme Court and leading to all those demonstrations in both Israel and the United States. That's pretty newsworthy. And then his leadership during the Israel-Hamas war. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. 
but it's certainly newsworthy. So I I think, uh, and obviously the counterweight to that would have been Hamas. You could see Hamas because of all the news that this war has caused um, Hamas being picked, picked as the person of the year. And remember, the person of the year is not supposed to be a nice person. Putin has been person of the year. Hitler has been person of the year. Stalin has been person of the year. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran has been the person of the year. It's the most newsworthy person. So um, I think it's a pretty good pick. If you would pick somebody different, I'd be curious who it would be. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Nixon was actually person of the year twice. Not once, but twice. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. Red, red wine. Go to my head. Make me forget that I still need her soul. Red, red wine It's up to you All I can do I've done But memories won't go The great Neil Diamond Memories won't go uh, Very pleased uh, to be heard uh, on many of our great radio stations, especially Talk 1400 WOND. Next weekend, I'm going to be in Atlantic City doing a little scouting for New Year's Eve Eve. I'm way behind in my plans for New Year's Eve Eve. And um, even my wife said, you got to get that email out. you got to get that email out. So uh, my plan is to wake up early today and finish all the arrangements that I have for New Year's Eve Eve and get that email out. But um, one article came across my uh, my desk this week that I thought was interesting. You know, the Ocean Casino Resort, which is a great property. I've spent a lot of time there. It's great. It's fun. To celebrate their fifth anniversary, their marketing teams came up with the idea to incorporate several local businesses because local businesses are pretty important to Atlantic City, obviously. So the five businesses they picked, and I'm familiar with all of them, they're great. The Seed, which is a living beer project, Little Water Distillery, Bar 32, Jetty Inc., and Mud Girl Studios. Mud Girl Studios might be the one I'm not familiar with. Of the 11 partnerships that started over the summer have continued into the fall and holiday season. So basically, the partnership between Ocean and these businesses results in the crafting of, say, a special drink, the pumpkin spice martini that was introduced in November and featured at Ocean Bars and Restaurants. Uh, they They purchased the distillery's 48 Blocks chocolate martini to create the chocolate cake martini. So they're patronizing local businesses, which I just love. They uh, reached out to Jetty Inc. to create an exclusive line of hats. You know, so often you go to these casinos and these hotels and you see made in China, made in Bangladesh, made in Vietnam. It's nice if you're located somewhere to actually see, I don't know, 
local businesses being patronized by these big businesses. And that's, I think, something that we could use more of. Uh, Kelsey Grammer, who I, who said he wants to come back on the show, he and I were texting this week, now that the actor strike is over and he can come on and talk about Frazier, he says he wants to come back. He was the MC at the Winter Wonderland Parade on the boardwalk last week. That must be so cool. Next year, I got to get down there. Uh, our man AC Mike was uh, was right there with him, uh, but apparently everybody got a big kick out of the fact that you could just walk right up to this big star, shake his hand, and even have a beer with him. And he was incredibly approachable. Took pictures with everybody that wanted one. I have to tell you, in my experience with Kelsey Grammer, that's exactly how he is. Exactly how he is. Incredibly approachable and incredibly kind. And I'm glad that they're still doing this parade. It's in its third year back after the COVID pandemic, and it's part of AC Tinseltown, which is the series of festive events. I'm hoping to check out some of that next week. We'll see. All right, until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Of the many recent changes in college athletics that we've seen over the years, there may be one that's not just transformative. It's totally revolutionary. Now, there was a big debate about whether or not college athletes should be able to profit when other people use their image. If uh, they make a video game and they put this big star college athlete in the game, should they be able to get paid? Well, now they can. Then uh, there became a big question about endorsement deals. Should they be able to do endorsement deals? My understanding is now they can. Well, now... This is a game changer. Now, keep in mind, these are athletes that generate a lot of money for the school, generate a lot of money for the television networks, generate a lot of money for the vendors involved. But they're also students. They're also students. They're there ostensibly to get an education. Well, now NCAA President Charlie Baker, who you may remember from when he was the governor of Massachusetts, He's planning to introduce this week a proposal to create a new subdivision 
within Division One that grants certain schools more autonomy around policy making and permits them. Are you ready for this? To compensate athletes in a new and profound way. So he sent a letter to the Division I members uh, that uh, has been widely reported on. And Charlie Baker outlines a groundbreaking and radical change to the NCAA Division I athletics model, describing it as a new forward-looking framework. So what's the proposal? According to Baker's proposal, schools that choose to be part of the new subdivision can opt in or out are required to meet a strict minimum standard rooted in athlete investment. Members of the new subdivision will be permitted to strike name, image, and likeness deals with their own athletes. A significant move away from the current structure. But the most impactful benefit of this new model is a framework in which schools can directly compensate athletes through a trust fund. Schools within the new subdivision will be required to distribute to athletes thousands of dollars in additional educationally related funds without limitation. There's no cap on the amount of funds that a program can provide an athlete. And this is, they're saying, the people that follow this stuff, the single most revolutionary concept introduced by a sitting NCAA leader in college athletic history. So basically what this amounts to is paying college athletes. I realize that's an oversimplification, but that's basically what it is. So this proposal has been is a culmination of a months-long review that Baker and staff conducted and it's apparently been one of his top priorities after taking the job. He just took over. And entry into the subdivision requires a school to invest at minimum $30,000 per year per athlete into what's termed an enhanced educational trust fund for at least half of a school's countable athletes. Schools would determine when athletes receive the amount, which for four-year athletes will total at least $120,000. Schools have to continue to abide by the framework of Title IX, assuring that 50% of the investment be directed towards women athletes as well. So I think this is wild. I think this is very interesting. I'm curious what you think about it. 800-848-9222. This is, love it or hate it, a new era when it comes to college sports. We're in an era, if this passes, that college athletes are going to be paid. What do you think? Should college athletes be paid? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. My view is I think this is a pretty good, pretty good idea. I really do. I, I could be convinced otherwise, and I'm not trying to take the college aspect out of the college athletics process. But I, I just have seen way too many or heard about way too many examples of college athletes who have an enormous amount of potential to make a lot of money in professional sports and then they get injured in college because they make the decision to complete their college career 
instead of turn pro when they're a sophomore or a junior and make hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars in the NBA or the the NFL. It's less less of a sure thing, that kind of money in baseball. I mean, it does happen, but not not as you see it in um, basketball and football. And you see these players get hurt, and then they get to finish their college career, but they don't get to enjoy any of the wealth that they would have had they skipped out on finishing college and gone right to the pros. Now, at least they get a little something. So this is a, I think, a a nice thing. These athletes generate a ton of money for the colleges and universities. I think they should be able to share in some of that wealth. So I think it's a good idea. What do you think? 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to William in Manhattan. Hi, William. Hi, Frank. I want to comment and say, um, yes, they should be paid, because my personal friend is Felipe Lopez, and uh, he was injured. He played on the Timberwolves for four years, and he did get a college degree, but we're in a new day and age. What really bothers me is these people in um NFL, they're looking like running around like men in tights. They don't have no weight on them like they're ballerina dancers. But this is, that's just my opinion on uh, what you had said on the topic. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, William. I think that's exactly the uh, the, the point here, and uh, that's exactly why I think it uh, makes a lot of sense. So, uh, I, what, now your friend made it to the pro, to the pros, and then he got injured. Yes, he played four years on the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves, Felipe Lopez. Gotcha. And, and he went to um, uh, at St. John's uh, College, same way it's, uh, at the same uh, college in Queens that I think Mark Jackson had also graduated from. So he wouldn't necessarily have been affected by this proposal, right? Because he still got to go to the pros and make money. When he was Frank, when when he was in the NBA, he had gotten injured. Gotcha. And that's why his career was cut short. After gotcha. Understood. Years. Understood. William, thanks for the perspective. Uh, appreciate that. 800-848-9222. Hey, coming up in about 15 minutes, we have Gnome Layden and we have uh, Brian Kilmeade. Looking forward to talking with both of them. I got a lot of items for uh, Brian Kilmeade, that's for sure. Nick is in New Jersey. Hello, Nick. Oh, hi, Don Frank. Yeah, it's interesting uh, topic you're talking about. about uh, college athletes, I mean, yeah, college athletes getting paid for uh, for their sports. Yeah, I think they should expand that not just for the uh, athletes, but for all the students. Uh, you know, by grade level, say somebody getting an A in science or A in uh, accounting, uh, A, B, C, or D, depending on what grade they get, they should get a uh, get paid. Well, I mean, I guess the 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 counter argument to that, Nick, is one that uh, a lot of those students who have incredible performances academically, a lot of them get academic based scholarships, but also the people that are getting A's in um, art history or, you know, even um, even political science or mathematics, they're not necessarily bringing in the kind of money or revenue for the university that the college athletes are. Yeah, well, I, I just thought it might, it might incentivize them to get better grades, you know, and uh, I mean, it's like somebody say a, a singer like Taylor Swift, you know, you might have uh, more young ladies, you know, 
going into the arts, into into musical things, into singing, you know, that type of thing, you know? Yeah, all right, Nick. Uh, well, putting it out there, I, I just, uh, I don't think that's likely. I don't think that's practical. This is a proposal that's, you know, on the table, and we'll we'll certainly see where it goes. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. You know, so it's funny. Tonight, I have this uh, group of a couple of guys that I get together with, uh, for a cigar, maybe about once a month, maybe about once every two months. Great guys. And so last time we were together, I told them about my friend Richard Stratton, who's been a guest on this show, who's just an incredible guy with an incredible life story. And they all said, oh, well, we want to meet Richard Stratton. It just so happens Richard called me uh, or texted me the other day and said, hey, you know, I'd love to get together with you for a drink or dinner before the holidays. And I said, you know, it's funny. I was just talking about you with all these guys, and they'd all love to meet you. How about we do something Thursday? Richard says, sure, we'll do it Thursday night. So then I get a message um, from someone else. I get a an invitation to Rayo's Thursday night, and I have to decline the Rayo's invite because I had arranged this Richard Stratton cigar meeting. Then And, you know, when you get an opportunity to go to Rayo's, generally the rule of thumb is you always just go. Whatever opportunity you have, you just go. So I um, turned down the Rayo's invite. I'm sure my seat was given away to another deserving gentleman or lady. And then I just got word a few hours ago that, unfortunately, one of the guys that we were going to uh, do this with, his mother had an accident or something. She... She took a fall, and uh, my friend's busy with that. And my other friend that was part of our little group, he's not able to make it. So they're asking if we can postpone until next week. And I'm sure that won't be a problem for Richard. Well, I hope it's not anyway. We'll ask him. But now I already passed on this Rayo's invite. So I don't know. I feel kind of silly going back to the person that asked me and said, Hey, by the way, uh, I know you know you probably asked someone else right after you invited me and I declined, but... Uh, is there any way I could still go? Uh, I kind of feel silly doing that now. I'll probably just let sleeping lemon chicken lie and, uh, you know, move on. All right, 800-848-9222. Five open lines if you want to comment. Gnome Layden is here. Brian Kilmeade is here. Um, we're on Twitter. I still call it Twitter, even though I know it's formally X, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And, um, oh, you know, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about, tomorrow we're going to do a big thing for Frank Sinatra's birthday. Frank Sinatra's birthday is uh, December 12th, but we're, we, I think Elliot Gordon actually might be here. He's got some very good Frank Sinatra stories that we're going to go through and uh, some Sinatra tunes that you have not heard before that I, we're going to play on uh, tomorrow's program as well. There's also been this bizarre feud between Cars for Kids and Cars for Kids. What do I mean by that? Well, one group is Cars for Kids with a K, and one group is Cars for Kids with a C. I was trying to understand... Uh, this this dispute they have. Apparently there is in litigation now. I'm not even sure which one is the one with the jingle. I love that jingle. You, it's on probably every radio station in America. But there's all sorts of controversy. So my understanding is the heads of one of this group, one of these groups, is going to be on tomorrow. 
I'm not sure if it's Cars for Kids or Cars for Kids, but one of them will be here tomorrow, and we'll uh, we'll see we'll see if we can enlighten you as to what exactly the nature of the feud and the litigation is between uh, Cars for Kids and Cars for Kids. Joe is in Freehold. Hi, Joe. Good morning, Frank. Great show. Thanks. Um, I heard you talking about uh, student athletes being compensated. And in a way, they're already being compensated through a form of free education, free housing, free food, free tutoring. Whatever it is that their needs are, the school pays for it already, which is probably an average of 100 to $125,000 per student on that team. So that's pretty good pay. Well, it certainly is. Uh, but um, And that's always been the argument as to why it's not a big deal that they're not getting paid, is that they're getting an incredible value for their athleticism. Um, I, I hear you. I still think, though, the current model as it is now it doesn't incentivize them at all, really, to stay in school and f- complete their education because they are all aware that if they get hurt, they're losing out in some cases on millions of dollars. Yeah, but when you have no skin in the game, you lose incentive too. So why bother getting education like you say? Why not the schools take out insurance policies on them if they get hurt and let someone else pay their freight? Yeah, so it sounds like you're not for this idea of uh, of – I just this... think they're already being compensated. That's yeah, well, they certainly it's... are. You're you're absolutely right uh, about that. You're absolutely right about that, uh, Joe. Thank you. Hey, uh, Noam Laden is here. We're going to uh, chat with him and then uh, talk with Brian Kilmeade shortly. Eddie is in Babylon. Hi, Eddie. Oh, oh great, Frank. Uh, Frank, in masonry, in Freemasonry, they have something called a cable tow. And uh, you can't go to a meeting. You can't go to an event. You say, well, my cable tow prevented me. Cable tow being... You know, family obligations first or work. Um, I look at uh, your invitation to Rayos and maybe something kept you. Are these people that you were going to go to a party with more like family? You might be able to tell the Rayos my, my, my ties to family and other obligations um, opened up, and I'd really be grateful to be invited to your party and attend. Yeah, I don't know, Eddie. I think, uh, I think once you kind of pass on the invite, it's done you they, you got to kind of let it happen as is i mean if my friend reaches out to me and says hey by the way i still don't have anybody to go to rails with tonight then i would say yeah my plans change i could go with you but no i, I think you know I, oh, that's cool. yeah eddie thank you all right noam laden and brian kill me join me straight ahead the other side of midnight with frank morano Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Lady Godiva was a freedom rider. She didn't care if the whole world looked. Joan of Arc with the Lord to guide her. She was a sister who really could. Isadora was the first bra burner. Angel that she showed up. The country was falling. You know we're not going to stop it before there's more. And then there's, then there's more. Uh, the great Norman Lear. I think one of the real keys to his success is that he had shows that all had 
great theme songs. I mean, really great. And, you know, just as an aside, if you ever watch the Family Guy sketch, you can find it on the YouTube. You know, I'll share it on my Facebook page. But if you ever watch the Family Guy sketch where they satirize the Maud theme song, it's, it's, ter- it's terrific. Where they go into the really, really long opening sequence. It, it's very funny. I just shared it on my Facebook page if you want to check it out. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll get to your calls momentarily. We'll get to Brian Kilmeade momentarily. But first. Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. From New York City, the other side of and its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Hello, Noam. Good morning, Frank. I'm going to start with what is really a very troubling report from the American Psychological Association. They released this annual report where they talked to psychologists about the state of mental health in America. And what they're reporting in this latest uh, report is over 56% of these psychologists say they had no openings for new patients. Among those who keep wait lists, average wait times now were three months or longer. Nearly 40% say their wait lists had actually grown substantially mm-hmm. over the last year. Uh, the survey also found that the people who are coming to them are coming for very specific uh, kinds of mental health issues, especially anxiety disorders, uh, depression, trauma Uh, Stress-related disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, sleep disturbances. Over half of the psychologists who weighed in on this survey say the length of time patients needed treatment over the last year has increased as well. So it tells you a little peak of what the mental health state is of Americans today, and it's not good. Sounds awful. It does. And the, a lot of that they point to is the shutdown. It's still all that happened post-pandemic of people being stuck in their homes. They say they're still seeing a lot of that. Um, and uh, they have a substantial amount of kids who are coming for help as parents push their kids to get help, but they don't have enough uh, psychologists, therapists out there to handle all the cases that are coming to them. Uh, so, I mean, I really don't know what to say in response to that other than how terrible that is. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, this, I would think, would be a, a top pr- priority for policymakers at, at all levels. Because if you look at all the other alarming trends that we're seeing, uh, drug overdose deaths, which are over 100,000 a year, the uh, suicides, which is, um, you know, uh, now setting a new record in the, year, the last year the numbers are available. These are all tied to the same thing. Mental health. And and for so many decades, we were Americans were accused of not taking mental health seriously. Now we have substantial evidence that Americans are taking mental health seriously, but there's not enough people to help those who need help. Yeah. So it's frightening numbers. Absolutely. Uh, here in New York, you know, sometimes you try to help people out and you kind of do the opposite. And this might be the case here. The app workers, the guys who deliver food here in New York City, 
uh, Uber Eats, um, uh, why am I seamless. DoorDash, yeah, seamless, seamless. Right. In New York City, food delivery has always been a big thing. This, it is not a pandemic thing. It's been that way for years. But now they're all app-based delivery systems. And you never had a guaranteed payday with that. It's what you did with your tips. That's right. how you made your money. Well, New York City said, no, uh, you can't do that. And they forced upon uh, app drivers in the state a minimum wage. Well, the app delivery services fought hard to try and stop this. But as of yesterday, uh, app workers have to make seventeen ninety six per hour uh, when they're working for these apps. So they have a minimum salary, 17 an hour, which I think works about to about $35,000 a year. So they were celebrating this big victory yesterday. And by uh, April of next year, it'll move to 20 bucks an hour that they're guaranteed. Wow. But here's the rub. The app delivery services say these workers were actually making around 29 bucks an hour on average with their tips. And now DoorDash and some of these other app services are so angry that this hourly salary has been forced upon them that they've made some big changes that are going to end up really hurting these workers. So now normally if you're not somebody who uses these app services, part of what you do is you order your food, but you have to put your tip in beforehand, right? right? Uh, You tip the driver before they get there. Now um, it is not in that opening page. Uh, You do your food delivery, it gets to you, and then afterwards it says, hey, if you want to, you can give this guy a tip. So it's not... Before, people would always give tips, right? right. I mean, yeah, who's thinking about it as they're chowing down on their pizza pie or, yeah. or sushi? Right? But once the food is delivered... Yeah. Uh, Yesterday's news. Yeah, so now you're going to lose on that post tip. Also, the uh, the apps are so angry. What they've done now, too, is uh, two of them anyway. The way they used to work is the highest rated workers were get the highest paying tipped jobs. So you, if you finished one job and you had five stars, uh, you'd get pointed to somebody who normally was a high tipper. All that is gone as of today. Wow. Oh, yeah. my. So. Well, again, uh, maybe if they keep helping these people, they might not be able to afford to stay uh, as app-based delivery people. Yeah. Uh, one more for you? Yeah, please. Uh, a local election in Washington state could have come down to a coin toss. Uh, Ryan Roth was facing off against Damian Green for a city council seat in Rainier, Washington. Uh, at the end of the election, it was tied. Then they recounted the vote. It was still tied. Then they recounted the vote a third time. It was still tied. And they have this mandatory system. It has to be recounted right. a certain amount of times. 2,900 people live in this town. It's not a big town. Didn't take a long time to recount it. Uh, so what in Washington in this town they have is if it ends in a tie, they do a coin toss. And whoever heads or tails, you win. But when they counted it a third or fourth time, they actually found out that um, Damian Ryan Roth had won by one vote. So they said, "Okay, you you know, you won. And uh, Damian Green then had to come forward. He was the loser and admit that he forgot to do one thing on Election Day. Don't tell me he didn't vote. He did not go. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That. as of yesterday, he has he he was the city council member. He's no longer because he decided on that day to not go and vote. And he How said, could "Yeah, he that not have a- voted." <laughs> and I'm sure Washington, like most states now, has you know at least some early voting. Of course, so if you can't make it on election day, there's I mean I don't know how many days they have in Washington, but New York you had nine days of early voting. Yeah, in Washington I'm sure it's a whole lot more than that. Oh my goodness! Well, I'm glad that guy lost. I don't know anything about his policies or his <laughs> right, politics. Right. Good riddance. Yeah, you can't exactly. be bothered to vote. You're out. All right, thank you, mm-hmm. Noam. 
And now you know the rest of the story. All right. Uh, now let me welcome a man who is once again a New York Times best-selling author, this time for his terrific book, Teddy and Booker T. Also happens to be uh, the co-host of Fox and & Friends and uh, one of the most listened to nationally syndicated radio talk show hosts in the country, Brian Kilmeade. Hey there, Brian. Frank, how you how you doing? What's going on? Uh, what's not going on? Uh, you remember there was a time when there was slow news days before Christmas. When what happened to those days? Yeah, I mean this aid package that's being debated now. Uh, I I like the Republicans are using the leverage to get the border. I do think, unlike a lot of people, the Ukraine is absolutely worth our money. I know it's not a perfect democracy, but they have taken out half of the Russian army. Prior to this battle, just for their sovereignty, not on aggression, just to push them back. And I know this is stalemate now, but all these guys want is just just give them the weaponry to fight. And I thought Mark Thiessen wrote a great column just talking about how this is actually allowing us to modernize our weaponry. We are actually building, having U.S. companies use this money to build more weapons, which helps our economy. And eventually all these Baltic nations will be writing checks. And Taiwan wants to pay for everything. They said they don't want anything free. You know, Israel, they they need some emergency funding, but they're going to pay for this stuff. But, I mean, first of all, um, it is interesting to me how the the changing uh, goal in Ukraine and the reason behind the Ukraine funding has morphed over the last two years. Initially, it was to uh, to free Ukraine. Then it was to beat Russia. Now, uh, the Biden administration and their letter to these Republicans in, in Congress that are sort of on the fence, they're basically saying, well, this is good for your district. This is good for red states. This is good for the American economy. But isn't the obvious compromise here, Brian, to do what you started to say at the beginning of the conversation, have kind of a grand bargain, have funding for Ukraine and Israel as long as there's funding for the border. I mean, to me, it's as as easy as pie. Yes. And and that's why as much as I'm I'm for everything you just said, the border is such a mess. I don't know. You've been watching our live coverage. Nobody does it better than Bill Malusian and, and Griff Jenkins at the border. We're live streaming this stuff in the morning and these cartels are mocking us. They're, they're cutting out holes in the fence, and they're letting these people stream through, and they're mocking Joe Biden. They're saying, thank goodness for Joe Biden. I'm from Morocco. Thank goodness for Joe Biden. Um, uh, I'm from Romania. Um, what are you talking about? What, that's not way, there's no way to run a country. I mean, do you see these numbers? Do you see how many people have come here illegally? How can you say that this doesn't matter? So also, critics of Ukraine aid, look at, you You know, say, uh, well, it's not a perfect democracy. They they say they don't like Zelensky. I have no idea why his height matters, but evidently his height matters to some people. Well, I'm so sure. they say so this little guy and they're mocking yeah. him. Uh, I don't get it. So having said that, you you have to not just build soft-sided facilities. I just don't want more judges. They have to have enforcement. They have to change the deportation. You come here illegally, you go right back immediately. Dave Cameron was on with Brett Baer last night. They're sending anyone who comes by boat to Rwanda. And, and, and Brett said, what do you mean Rwanda? He goes, yeah, we have to tell everyone. We just got to send a message. If you come here, you go to Rwanda. I don't care where you're from. I mean, that's pretty extreme from an ally that we usually agree with. Why can't we just tell people to go back to their own country?
Yeah, I mean, I can't argue with that one uh, one bit. Uh, this was one of the issues, well, both of these, uh, the border issue and uh, and the foreign aid on Ukraine and Israel came up in this uh, debate yesterday. Did you watch any of this, Brian? I mean, I think most yeah. people expect this to be the least watched of the of the four debates in the primary season. What were your takeaways? My, my takeaway was, uh, number one, obviously, they're going after Nikki Haley. They're going after her uh, days on the on the Boeing board, which she said she resigned from as soon as they look for a federal bailout. I have no problem with people leaving unless there's rules. If you leave the governorship, if you leave as UN ambassador, you probably made about $200,000. You got three kids. You got a dad, uh, excuse me, a husband in the military. If Boeing says, hey, we want your experience and international connections, I have no problem with it. If you want to ban people from from going to a major corporation for a year until after they leave the office, all right, go vote on it. You know, see what happens. I worry about sometimes people. Uh, changing policy to get a job after, if that's your thing. But she did nothing wrong. So that was a point of contention. They also said that she was very nice to a Chinese company that came to South Carolina. I get it. For a while, we did not have much of a problem with China buying different businesses, uh, buying different tracts of land. Sobered up. So I wish he would say that. I wish he would just say, listen, I I did not see the, the problem with China the way I see it now. I'd be fine with that when she was governor of South Carolina. But I also thought that Chris Christie took Vivek apart. I thought Vivek Ramaswamy's foreign policy is absolutely terrible. But he allows a foil for people to, to go off on. But the personal attacks on Nikki Haley, Chris Christie fighting back, I think, showed his posture that he thinks Nikki Haley's going to emerge over DeSantis. And I think he wants to be tight with her. So I don't know if you saw that moment when he just basically stuck up with her because Vivek was going after her personally. I thought Don DeSantis was really strong, too. So I thought it was a very good debate. Uh, you know, they are. this is the last one before Iowa. But the f- most fascinating thing, Frank, was when asked to go after Trump. They said, you know, he's not the same guy, but they never said he was incompetent. Chris Christie says he is incompetent. He's going to be right, and a dictator. Unfit I, I agree with right. you, Ewan. He's not going to be a dictator. I mean, that's not, that's not a worry. To leave after four years is not a worry. If you don't like his style or that he, you feel as though these court cases will keep him from the campaign trail, I think that's legitimate. Yeah, I just um, I just kind of wonder what the point of all these debates is without Trump, who is even under four indictments, the prohibitive favorite to be the nominee. Even if he's convicted, even if he's in a jail cell, he's going to be the nominee and he's not participating. So it's it's just uh, to me, it looks like uh, a JV JV squad. They don't have a choice, though. I mean, if you're them, you can't make Trump show up. Right. You're kind of shocked that he's up by 30. So I don't think many people thought when this started, when Governor DeSantis did so well and a lot of the candidates that Donald Trump supported did so poorly, that this would be the case. And I think there's a strong case that all these court cases just made the American people go, this is ridiculous. You know, he wasn't perfect, but this is overdone. You waited two years to do it. You you timed it perfect. We're not stupid. We know exactly. You're not going for justice. You're going to destroy this guy. And did you see Bill Burr? I'm sure you didn't, Frank. You're working. But they just gave, sent me cuts of Bill Burr last night with Jimmy Kimmel. And he basically is not a fan of Donald Trump. But he says, you liberal idiots have totally, you've reignited him. You have made him a martyr. He is now more popular than ever. We were done with him. And now he is back. 
and Jimmy Kimmel just had nothing to say right. about it. Well, what knows. can you say to that? He was the Pied Piper of this. Right. That's true. It's, it's absolutely true. Hey, speaking of uh, President Trump, President Biden is uh, getting a lot of attention for some uh, comments that he made at a, at a fundraiser in private where basically he said that if Trump weren't running, he doesn't know that he would be running again. Couldn't believe and, it. And yeah. then he was uh, asked about this again. They do the thing where they shout questions to, to him as he's entering an airplane or exiting an airplane. And he said, no, 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 no. At this point, he's definitely running no matter who the nominee is. I thought this was a very honest response by Biden, the initial one. What did you think? Maybe honest, but I mean, how many more years of experience does he need before he starts getting wise about what's going to help him and what's not going to help him? Number two is he also said yesterday that he doesn't think he is the only one to beat, the only Democrat that can beat Donald Trump. And does anybody think that he's a strong candidate? Absolutely nobody. But he won't step aside. And then he says, I'm the only one to beat Trump. And most Democrats think that they could beat Trump. You know, you can tell me Gavin Newsom and Pritzker and uh, Jared Polis and Kamala Harris don't think they can beat Trump. They all do. And they must be saying to themselves, how long are we going to keep quiet? Ted Kennedy didn't keep quiet. He thought Jimmy Carter was weak. He stepped up. You know, Pat Buchanan did not think Bush 41 was a strong president. He stepped up. You know, and he created some havoc. Uh, in you know, for his election and his original nomination, I just don't understand why these Democrats are so timid. I mean, except for this congressman from uh, Minnesota. I, I mean, I just don't understand why they're standing on the sideline. You know, you you saw that he the other day he couldn't leave the stage again, mm-hmm. and then yesterday, uh, I don't know, Frank. I don't know if this is getting enough attention. At the end of his remarks, asking for an aid package, he was asked about your emails. He didn't say, you know, your pseudonym using this name Peters shows that you were directly interacting with business partners of Hunter Biden, your son. He said all lies. It's not a lie. Now there's thousands more emails handed over yesterday. We haven't even seen them yet. We're about to see them. These are direct contacts with Eric Sherwin and other people using a pseudo email, pseudo email when he was vice president and he was in private practice. He is lying again and getting away with it. I mean, he looked in the camera and said, 51 Intel agent said, this is not my son's laptop. This is Russian disinformation. When he knows those were his emails and his voicemail to his son on that laptop. He lied on that debate and it got him through it. He is lying again. I'm not for impeachment. I'm for the investigation. Impeachment's a waste of time. I'm for the investigation. They are proving this guy is corrupt and all his answer is, all lies. So look for that to develop today. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be uh, eager to see where where that goes. Hey, speaking of the presidential race, uh, someone, the latest person who has now said they're open to running as a third party candidate, specifically for the reason of stopping Donald Trump, is is Liz Cheney. Now, I'm, I've been very eager to ask you about this because I think Liz Cheney's view of foreign policy, very, very hawkish and a lot of different issues. It's much closer to your view than it is mine. How do you view this Liz Cheney threat? Is this just a ploy to sell a book, or do you think there's actually something to this? She's clueless. She couldn't get elected in the most Republican state in the country at a seat where she's got the most famous last name. I'm a big fan of her dad. I I got along with her great when she was here. She got along with Donald Trump on 97, maybe, okay, let's say 90% of everything he did. 
she was uh, she was on board with it. She was going to be speaker, no question. After Kevin McCarthy was done, she would have been a wise choice, not with this ouster, but uh, she would have been a wise choice. And but January sixth was her uh, was her uh, no go zone. All right, fine. But what she's done since, I think, is ridiculous. I mean, she actually thinks that Rachel Maddow likes her. She actually thinks all these Democrats interviewing her like her. The View like her. They only tolerate her like they do Michael Cohen because it's anti-Trump. They disagree and she disagrees with them. She's tough as nails, but she has no base. She's got no popularity. She's not respected on the left. And now she's not respected on the right. There is no lane to be anti-conservative and anti-Trump and do your first interview with Rachel Maddow. I don't care how many books you sell. So she could run. She'll get let. She'll Jill Stein will outplay. I, I completely her. agree with you. Again, if she's the Republican on this no labels bipartisan ticket, I, I don't think she wins over. I think she wins over almost nobody. Her. Nobody. Yeah, you're exactly right. Hey, um, when you were on the program last week, I asked your prediction on whether Kevin McCarthy would run for reelection. Or not, and I guess this is why we don't have you do football picks. You said that you thought he would absolutely run for re-election. He's now saying that not only is he not going to run for re-election, he's leaving Congress by the end of the year. Um, Where do you think this leaves Kevin McCarthy? Where do you think this leaves the House Republicans? They're now going to have only a two-seat majority once he resigns. Well, I mean, I think he's going to finish out his term, right? No, he's he's leaving uh, before the end of the year. Well, that's interesting. I thought he was finishing out his term when it originally crossed yesterday. Um, I find that I find that uh, I think he, this is a delay of game. If a Republican wins, he joins that cabinet as chief of staff, whether it's Trump or uh, or Nikki Haley. If you want someone to negotiate Congress and get something through and tell a president what is possible and what is not, it's him. Also, I think he'd be a great deputy, if not the secretary of state. Chief of Staff, National Security Advisor, his knowledge of international relations is off the charts. His connections and respect abroad really took me by surprise. But in talking to him off camera, I mean, that's where he really that's what he really loves, believe it or not. He loves the Middle East. He loves talking to Europe. He loves the challenge of China and his knowledge and courage and energy is his kids are older now. He'll have uh, full time to get it there. No, none of it. You know, he didn't have family tearing at him like uh, Tom Cotton did, which is the main reason he didn't run. Or Governor DeSantis would have a real tough decision. You know, if he was had to run around the world as Secretary of State, he does not have that issue. So, if a Republican wins, look for him to be there. And you are telling me something I didn't know. I didn't know he was not going to fill out his term. That is unbelievable. But it's but it's a very Republican district, so I think the seat is somewhat safe. Unlike. The seat right by me with Tom Swazi's running for, that's going to be a tough haul. Uh, yeah, that is uh, that is for sure. Uh, Brian, before I let you go, I want to encourage everybody to listen to you on radio and uh, on uh, seat, watch you on television. And if people haven't checked out uh, Teddy and Booker T, they absolutely should. You are a uh, lover of history, and the books that you've written have sort of gone in chronological order from the birth of the Republic to the dawn of the 20th century, which is what you're up to now. If you continue at this pace, pretty soon you're going to be at Pearl Harbor and World War II. Uh, Today is obviously the day that did live in infamy, December 7th. Give me your take on uh, Pearl Harbor and the parallels to other events that you might have covered, including September 11th, including October 7th. 
What a great question. I mean, it was just we had almost the military was not. I mean, it wasn't as bad as World War One, but World War Two, we were not ready to fight a war. We converted everything, went to the war footing. Uh, women went and took men's jobs. Everybody immediately went to a draft. Uh, tens of thousands would die almost immediately. We take on all-out war on two fronts. Uh, can you imagine this? Uh, uh, being fighting in the Pacific and fighting in Europe and thousands dying and, and knowing that the, every house next to you, to your right and left on Christmas, as Christmas comes up, knowing that Somebody was serving overseas and hard to even keep pace on who survived and who's wounded. I couldn't imagine that moment, but it was galvanized the whole country in one direction. And what happened afterwards brought us to this moment. But I just wonder if this administration after uh, December 7th would be uh, wondering if we could talk our way through it or thinking twice about what we do next. I mean, we we have a lack of decisiveness the way we're looking at uh, victims and we are wide open as targets right now in the Middle East. What happened in Afghanistan, uh, the equivocating on Ukraine, if if it's not uh, the invasion of Czechoslovakia and not, uh, you know, giving up uh, the invasion of Poland. That's that's what this is. You have before our eyes, Iran, China, Russia, North Korea every day reinforcing their bond and they're saying guys we just put on the same jersey they just rolled the ball out at stake is the future of the world let me know if you want to play and we could still stop it but we're still sitting on the sidelines if if we didn't learn anything from december 7th and i think about christopher ray this week testifying saying alarm bells are going and sirens are going off everywhere almost like uh the day before 9 11 9 10 so the FBI is saying, don't blame me if something happened. I told you so. We're seeing the, our, our guys on the march saying, we told you we're combining. We actually had meetings. And the meetings that Hamas had with Russia and the way Russia is benefiting from the world looking at Israel, no longer looking at Ukraine, it is playing out perfectly to our enemies. I just wish we'd wise up and start getting involved strategically and not just <laughs> reacting politically. Brian, we're going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the uh, the time this morning. I look forward to chatting with you next week. Thank you. All right. Go get him, Frank. All right. Brian Kilmeade. We'll do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano.
The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Magazine Subscriptions, an instant classic. This is the throwback version of this song. There is a new version that's uh, tearing up the charts, which we're very proud of. It's actually on the YouTube, but uh, you can uh, you can check it out. Hey, Matt Blaze, we didn't play that uh, song that, um, that Al from New York had commissioned for us. Maybe tomorrow we can uh, play that. We'll work on it. Yeah, all we'll right. work that in. We'll, okay. We can work that one in. Yeah, we had all the Mike from New Jersey uh, selections for today. All right. Uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Let's begin with our Listener of the Week, Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Imagine if Chris Christie and Liz Cheney conceived a child. When their newborn was presented to them in swaddling clothes, they pulled back the blanket to reveal a nine-pound baby Trump. Adoption was the only option. Mm, Rocco. Hey, meathead, this is Carol O'Connor. I love to meet your sister's teeth, mouth-to-mouth, and compare teeth. Matt has my number. Sid rules. Sid rules. Charlie. Where are the feminists? Where Where's the Me Too movement? The mysteriously silent about Israeli Jewish women and children victims of terror. Are those are these victims less valuable, less worthy than other victims? I certainly hope. Neil. Nobody told Roosevelt to hold back after we were attacked by the Japanese on December 7th. And nobody should tell Netanyahu to hold back. Either. Mike. Okay, Frank, sorry you're missing out on your dinner at Rayo's, but my culinary expertise will be satisfied by Chef Cristobal at Dino and Son, Woodside. Raji. In view of the U.S. Navy's preoccupation with the Middle East uh, and nonstop arms and cash to Ukraine, the U.S. will run out of ammunition in two weeks if China invades Taiwan. Ha, 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 ha. Lian. Leanne. Hello? Go ahead, Leanne. Uh, All right. Cheech. E-bikes should be banned. So far in 2023, 18 New Yorkers burned to death because the New York City Council permitted the use of them. The blood is on their hands. Jay. How you doing, man? Go ahead, man. You got 15 seconds. All right, yo, 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 Frank, man. Yo, man, you the dopest, man. Yo, I love you and um the other dude, the other dude who be on the weekends, the other dude, man, on the grand for mayor. I'm flattered to be in such great, great, in such a great company. Robert. Liz Cheney is a turncoat, traitor, and sellout who should choke on her own drunken vomit. Oh, please, that's, don't be ridiculous. Uh, George. Is a moron, is a moron, is a moron. Don. Frank, let me tell you, you're doing a great job. And I tell you this, I tell you this. When, when I'm back, we're going to make Staten Island. We're changing the capital. I did it in Israel. I'll do it in the United States. Staten Island will be the capital of the USA. <laughs> Mr. President, from your mouth to God's ears. I think Staten Island would be a great capital. Frank Morano, good day.